0: You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the
1: cockpit door.
2: WAPG. It's the
3: Airline Pilot Guy.
2: Airline Pilot Guy, episode 411. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door with your host, Captain Chat broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG Headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 4th of February, 2020. today's episode, spilled drinks in the cockpit may have caused engine shutdowns. And did certification issues contribute to the helicopter crash that killed Kobe Bryant? More news, your feedback, and in today's plane tales, the airman's cross. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 411 is ready for pushback.
4: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guys show. We've been aviation podcasting on APG for more than 10 years, and we cover the latest in aviation news, and we try to cover your fantastic feedback. And joining me, from his studio in the English countryside, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired captain for an international airline based in London, it's Captain Nick. Well, good evening, Jeff, and thank you very much indeed for this extremely
0: civilized start. time. must uh, appreciate it. Looking forward to the usual 50% show.
4: Oh, it's our pleasure. And joining us from the northwest Atlanta suburbs, barbecue master, motorcycle rider, pleasure boat skipper, underwater photographer, and captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, it's Captain Dana.
5: Captain Dana. Well, if I hit the right speakerphone. There then, we go. Uh, <laughs> I'm a little rusty, I guess. Hey, great to be back and uh, looking forward to a fantastic episode, especially this episode when we'll be giving you the 411 on everything.
4: Yeah, I can't wait to hear how that, uh, that cruise of yours went. Oh, yeah. All right. And now it's time for us to get right on to the news.
6: Stand by for news.
4: All right, from flightglobal.com. A350 engine shutdown incidents are linked to cockpit drink spills. Airbus and Rolls Royce are investigating two incidents in which A350s experienced uncommanded in flight engine shutdown after drinks were spilled on controls situated on the cockpit center pedestal. Flight Global understands that the airframer is to discuss the matter with operators on 30 January, so that was just a few days ago and will issue a transmission on recommended practices for handling beverages on the flight deck. Uh, One of the incidents involved a Delta Airlines A350-900 en route to Seoul on the 21st of January, which diverted to Fairbanks after its right-hand Rolls-Royce Trent XWB engine shut down, while a similar event occurred to another carrier in November of last year. Some 15 minutes before the Delta shutdown, Flight Global has learned a drink was spilled on the center pedestal between the two pilot seats, primarily on the integrated control panel for engine start and electronic centralized aircraft monitor functions. The right-hand engine shut down and the crew attempted to restart, which was unsuccessful, and the crew chose to divert, subsequently landing safely in Alaska. Flight recorder analysis showed the electronic engine control had commanded a closure of a high-pressure shutoff valve after inconsistent output from the integrated control panel. The previous incident on the 9th of November, 2019, occurred about a, one hour after tea was spilled on the center pedestal. Um, so, again, another uh, shutdown of the Trent XWB engine. You know, I, I don't know about you guys, but I was kind of curious about how something so new, and I think I think we even talked about it on the show, like how how is it that we're already having... Issues with these brand new engines, and now we kind of understand why.
0: Oh yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I'm. Um, I'm not surprised that they've had a problem after a liquid spill on the center console. It's just like um throwing liquid over your computer. To a certain extent, oh, I've done entire that entire thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we, they, uh, I think we all. I don't have. recommend yeah. that. <laughs> exactly uh that whole thing is just like one massive keyboard that entire area and if you put a liquid spill over it well it'll be moisture resistant to a point but eventually you can seep down and cause one of those many micro switches down there or element switches or in this case a uh, a major fuel switch to malfunction Uh, so the very simple answer to this and uh, a procedure that was strictly um, enforced in my outfit was you never pass any liquids over the center console. If someone comes in and wants to pass a liquid cup, you know, cup of tea or something to you, they have to go around the back of the seats and pass it to you uh, between the, in the gap between your shoulder and the window. So there was never any chance of liquids going over the center console. And I was a bit of a stickler to it because I'd had uh, two first officers uh, spill liquid over the uh, McDo. The, it's the main sort of data entry box, uh, and it's a multifunction box, so it can affect uh, radios. It can affect uh, a cars, It can affect navigation, all sorts of things, and uh, wrecked them. So, uh, I mean, luckily, you've got three on board, so you can carry on if one... Goes U.S., but uh, it, you know it's just a, a pointless, uh, stupid thing to do. Um, you know, just thoughtless. So, and they're damned expensive. If it came out of your wage packet, you'd be sure you'd never pass, pass it over the center console,
4: sort of pass a drink that way. Why not take some of that plastic cling wrap and just just cover the whole pedestal there?
0: Good idea. Good. I, I personally, I think they could also make a be- better effort to. Um, protect the switches. It's certainly internally, if not externally. External, external right. is a bit uh, difficult. But I, I think you could have a higher standard of uh, um, waterproofing. But uh, I don't know. It, it's, it, You'd have to ask the manufacturer about that.
5: It's, okay. I think so far we're lucky it's only been one engine. Actually, oh,
0: yeah. Just imagine
5: if it, both are gone. Yep. Yeah. Oh, I see That's what you're saying. we started yeah. because now, again – you're just a vote in the cockpit. So if the computer overrides you, it's all over. And that is a micro switch. That's a electronically driven micro switch. That thus is, if it's shorted out, it's all over. The game, game, game over. There's yeah. no way to override it. Yeah. Apparently, the
4: only way that they were able to, do, I think, in both of these incidents, they they were able to restart the engine once they had landed. So there must be some kind of a ground shift linkage uh, issue involved with uh, with that as well. I don't know. Maybe the system resets itself once it. Gets on the ground, I'm not sure.
5: Um I mean, Jeff, you know our, our uh A cars unit gets so hot that if you spill any water on it'll boil right off real quick anyways. That's right. <laughs> So Micah in the chat
0: room uh, reminds us we talked about this a similar sort of thing in September, uh, and uh, at that time we both um, recalled the film Fate is the Hunter, which is a really old black-and-white movie uh, of airplanes uh, that were, you know, of the 707 vintage, where ex- supposedly exactly this happened. Uh, an accident occurred, and they discovered it when trying to recreate it, that it was the uh Cabin attendant uh, spilling coffee over the um center
4: console but
0: yeah it's it's full of electronic stuff and you really don't want to mix it with the water
4: um luke langbing is one of the people that sent in this uh, article um he said that he thought we might find this interesting and have you guys ever spilled anything on the controls slash avionics um Only, no, only our private computers. That's what we uh, like to spill things on. (laughs) Yeah,
5: I've never spilled anything on the avionics. Thankful.
4: And is there a a protocol at your airline if that happens? Um, Not really that I can think of right offhand, Dana. I don't think we have a protocol.
5: I I can't think of anything either. I mean, I can see where this might be going that, you know, kind of Nick's procedure with his uh, airline or, you know, you're not allowed to drink anything in the the flight deck anymore, which would be. I think, catastrophic.
4: Yeah, well, that I can't see that happening. Uh, He also asks, should Airbus's be provided a fake yoke so pilots can pretend like they're flying (laughs) instead of using the empty surfaces as footrests and buffet tables? Now, to be fair, I don't think, at least in the two incidents that we're talking about here, if that really was the issue, uh, I I think it was more of what Nick was saying is like maybe – uh, somebody handing the drink over and right over the top of the central pedestal and it spilling, wouldn't you think? I mean, I'm not but, sure. That, yeah.
0: There, yeah, there's no real way to rest a drink on the center console. Uh, and funny enough, all the places where you tend to rest your feet, Airbus have very kindly uh, put rubber bumpers so you can rest your feet on them. Like at the front of the center console, um, uh, for the guy who's sitting in the jump seat, there's a nice big long rubber bar that he can... Uh, uh, rest his feet on the uh, the center console, use that as a foot rest. In front of the pilots, there's a couple of uh, um, quite high stirrups that you can hook your feet into and just change your position and have your feet uh, off the floor for a while if you want to lie back, etc. And on the left side, which is the safe side, there's not much down there. You've got cup holders and uh, trays and all sorts of things if you want to put stuff to one side. Just no, absolutely no reason to use the area
4: of the center console. Very good. I'm I'm still trying to get the picture out of my head of the, the high stirrups. stirrups. And-
0: oh, there's like birthing stirrups. stirrups. The yeah. Oh, they're wonderful. like a birthing stirrups. That's exactly nice. what they are. And you can actually, um, you can actually pedal them up and down because they, they, they sit recessed and then you tap them to your feet and you can just bring them down and just hook your feet into them. And, uh, sick I, you know, used to go along and pedal them like, uh, well, let's make this thing go faster. <laughs> You pilots
4: are so funny. <laughs> okay, I think we should move on to item B, unless there's anything else to be said about the spilled drinks oh, on the cup. just
0: Ken Hayes, do Airbus pilots need sippy cups? Uh, in my belief, uh, we all need sippy cups, mm-hmm. quite honestly. Ken, if you look at the uh, all the people walking around America with hot coffee uh, for anywhere in the world, they've all got uh, cups with uh, you know just sippers on the end. And that's an ideal way to go because uh, it's very hard to spill from one of those, certainly in any quantity.
4: Dana, yeah, no, oh, I thought you were going to say <laughs> no. What I, I, I thought he was going to say, what I'm about to say, which is that in at at our airline, the pilot cups, and they are called pilot cups. Uh, they're styrofoam, so you know they're not <laughs> they're not perfect, but uh, they're a little bit larger than the normal. Um, throwaway recyclable kind of cup that uh, you would get in the back of the airplane so it holds more and then they also come with these nice lids that uh, basically a sippy cup uh, setup so every time I ask for my coffee and they say would you like uh, a lid and I always say you know if I say no i I'm sure to spill it all over myself and probably all over the airplane so yes go ahead and put one on there
5: Please. Well, that's that's because you drink coffee. I don't drink coffee. I just drink those bottles of water oh, okay. that have the screw top on it. So yeah. even if it falls over, it's not a whole lot of water being spilt anywhere. So well,
4: you're a very smart yeah. man, but I need my caffeine. Oh,
5: that's right. I, I used yeah.
0: to have my uh, my own Starbucks plastic uh, refillable mm-hmm. mug. I used to hand them that, and on the side, I'd write how I like my tea and coffee. Uh, and and they women. thought
7: yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> all the uh all the cabin crew thought that was actually quite neat because they, they said oh it's so much easier bringing this into you because they're all terrified of spilling on the flight deck uh, just as we should be but they're more so because you know they're they're just you know a bit wide-eyed
5: particularly the the new ones Nick, and worried did, about did, it did I hear you right did you say you write on the side how you like your pee and your coffee T T oh P
4: and I mean ah, T T T I
5: thought you like type of P in coffee no T mm. T a little little, you say
4: that again a little tea. odd T <laughs> I think I'm, we're getting it T as in Tango yes all right tango or, or, Alpha or Twinnings is, is it pronounced Twining or Twinnings I don't know that's a tea company that we have here in the states I thought it was in the UK as well but apparently not all right moving on uh, item B update. Uh, The NTSB issues 10 recommendations after Embraer ERJ-175 pitch control incident. Oh, I meant to ask one of our community members about this before we talked about it on today's show, but I've neglected to do that. Oh, well. Um, You know, we talked about the ERJ-175 that had the uh, control issue taking off out of uh, Atlanta International Airport back in November of last year. Yeah. Well... Um, the captain and first officer later reported that they both needed to use both hands to counter the airplane's nose up pitch motion and that doing so involved such effort that neither felt that they could reach for the QRH to troubleshoot the problem. Ultimately, the flight crew was able to trim the airplane with the first officer's trim switch returning to Atlanta and land the airplane safely about 15 minutes after declaring the emergency. Uh, The NTSB issued six safety recommendations to the NCAA of Brazil, uh, National Civil Aviation Agency, and four to the Federal Aviation Administration. The recommendations are designed to address areas of concern, including wire chafing, application of Embraer service bulletins related to the pitch trim switch, and potential limitations in checklist memory items for pilots to address unintended operation of the pitch trim system. Although the cause of the incident remains under investigation, post-incident examination of the airplane revealed chafed insulation around wires connecting the horizontal stabilizer actuator control electronics to the captain's pitch trim switch and autopilot-slash-trim disconnect button. The chafing was caused by contact with the incorrectly untucked pigtail of the forward mechanical stop bolt safety wire. When the captain's pitch trim switch was removed from the yoke, marks were observed that indicated at some point before the incident flight, the pitch trim switch had been installed in an inverted position. Embraer previously issued three service bulletins related to pitch trim switch installation error following reports from flight crews in 2015 about flight control system difficulties. However, neither the FAA nor the uh, Brazilian agency uh, required incorporation of the service bulletins. While it is not yet known if inverted switch installation was a factor in this incident, the NTSB is concerned the condition could lead to flight crew confusion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, funny No kidding. (laughs) Uh, Delaying appropriate recognition of and response to increased control surfaces. So, um, interesting. Uh, Yeah, that would be very, very confusing if you activated, you're manually flying the airplane and you're trying to pitch down and the system is pitching the stabilizer up uh, that that would not be good um but my problem with this is that this is not this is not the first flight of the day for that airplane and i think it had flown several flights since maybe uh, maintenance had worked on the pitch trim switch they don't really go into that much detail but i'm thinking it seems to me that somebody would have noticed that the thing was wired backwards wouldn't you think unless Captains are routinely just immediately turning on the autopilot uh, shortly after takeoff and not even knowing whether the pitch trim switch was wired, inverted, or backward.
5: I don't, I, does it even say it's wired? It just says it's installed. Well, I mean, okay. That's so maybe, I mean. maybe maybe, the, the switch itself is, and I'm just, I'm surmising, the switch was installed upside down, but wired correctly. So instead of it saying, you know, when you push it trim down, it says trim up. Yeah. Which, if somebody's reading it, is pushing it in the wrong direction, but the actual function was working in the right way. But then why did they have the
4: uncommanded or uh, uncontrollable because situation?
5: The, 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 the wire got chafed. That would know? be the chafed wire. Sure. I guess. Well, that so, seems more yeah. reasonable to me, yeah,
0: than,
4: than
5: yeah. the actual.
0: Yeah, I think dana has got a good point there, because uh, after all, it's just a, a two-way contact switch. The actual trimmer it's how you connect it at the back of the switch depends on which direction it will trim when you when you um, move the switch right not not uh, necessarily which way up the switch is, but uh, it's, and that's an interesting point you'd hope uh, in this day and age anything that could be fitted upside down by accident would be designed so that it couldn't
4: right you know Murphy's rule. And then I was—I would assume that I know that uh, on Dana and my airplane, we um, always check the trim to make sure that the trim is working and all the ways that we can actuate the trim. And it's also working in the proper direction.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Because, of course, it wasn't ever an Airbus thing because we didn't have oh, yeah, the right. auto you, trim. You guys aren't able to trim, right? Well, we have a manual trim. But, I mean, you uh, don't. It's, no, it's not normal. No, automatically the aircraft trims trim. itself.
4: Yeah, so our system uh, uh, is—you know—we we check the uh, the switches on the yokes, and we check the uh, the suitcase handle, <laughs> the 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 fast trim on the center console, and uh, the slow trim on the center console. So, um, one-third
5: of degree per second, or uh, one-tenth of degree per second. Oh,
4: I didn't know that. Actively. Oh, you get extra points for that. Let me uh, find the bell. Oh, oh yeah. Oh um, right. uh, shoot. Ding. Yeah, ding. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome.
5: <laughs> I, I was, was going to also say that, that useless uh, my useless stuff that stole my brain from teaching. Oh, it's great airplane. stuff. I like that.
0: Um, I also uh, was a bit surprised that they didn't have uh, a pin trip, a uh, pin trip, a pitch trim runaway. My apologies for my loose tongue, <laughs> but let's put it back in again. Okay. <laughs> a pitch trim runaway as a memory item, because all the aircraft I flew with manual pitch, uh, electrical systems, it was, it a memory item on how to disable that and recover from it. And if that wasn't the case on this aircraft, I'm a bit surprised.
4: I know they did have a pitch trim runaway QRH or, uh, or bolt face or whatever you want to call it, but I'm not sure that the actual part where you disconnect the trim system with those two switches on the um, center console were included in the, in the, in the first items of the, of the checklist. I, I can't recall. Okay.
5: All right. Anyway. But I'm sure that. I mean, uh, and just to verify what you what you're saying, Nick, is is the same thing with us. I mean, we we have a procedure, and there's a procedure at my former carrier as well. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's what I would have expected.
5: Yeah, so
4: the the item about well, they weren't they weren't uh, sure they could let go of the yoke and grab the QRH. Well, you shouldn't have to grab the QRH if it's yeah. if it's part of your checklist. I don't know. Maybe it. we the item. Yeah uh but i think uh, uh captain craig uh he flies the airplane so maybe he can fill us in on whether or not the um if that's part of the uh what do they call it uh, memory Check- items thank
5: you immediate action items yes. uh, checklist okay uh
4: let's move on to c uh we have an update uh regarding the uh, c130 coulson crash in australia and actually, it's not us that have the update. It is it is uh, Juan Brown of Blanco uh YouTube channel, and uh, he has. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna play it here. I'm just letting you know that he um, uh, was able to get some uh, eyewitness video of the airplane after they made their fire retardant drop, and it kind of flew into, or it appears to fly in to the smoke of the the fires, kind of downwind, and uh, you can kind of just barely see it through the smoke, but it it looks like it it just um, stays level and then it starts descending and then it just finally hits the ground and you can see the fireball and everything else. And he talks about the fact that uh, a lot of times these fires can actually make their own um, weather system. And uh, so, you know, combine that with a tailwind and uh, extreme downdrafts uh, and updrafts caused by the fire um, may have just... uh, they may have gotten themselves into a situation where they couldn't fly out of it.
0: Yeah. I thought it was a very good analysis. And interestingly, there was, there was also a heightened speed readout. I'm assuming f- from, I don't know, uh, ADSB or something that they had managed to acquire, uh, which showed that the speed dropped off significantly before they uh, hit the ground. But um, it was one interesting comment and I would love to have heard him expand on it, which was that, um, they were, when he was doing this job, uh, they were generally told to, if they could, uh, release uh, in a descent mm-hmm. uh, rather than level. Uh, and he said these guys were doing it level. But he didn't explain why, because my instinct as a pilot would be, man, I don't really want to point the aircraft at the ground unnecessarily. Uh, I'd much rather be going level or up when I do this. So or, or- I was just curious to know why he
4: wanted to release in a descent. Or did he say that when he was learning how to do this kind of maneuver that they were releasing down slope, uh, in other words, down slope terrain wise? So uh, that
0: it might have been a terminology thing. Then I'll have, I'll yeah. have to have re-listen and see whether right. I pick that up right
4: or not. So that in that in that sense, it kind of makes sense because um, the the terrain that you're the at which you're pointing is is descending and not rising in front of you, but. Having
0: said that, train that goes down inevitably has some. Terrain that goes up just after it. Just, no, it just keeps on like, going down. i
5: will <laughs> <laughs> teach the flat earthers. Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you're right. Uh, not releasing into ground that's climbing
4: in front of you, I think that would probably be important. You so. know, he always amazes me. Uh, the, his his experience, his background is like, what else has he done? <laughs> he oh, yeah. So he many. seems to have
0: done absolutely everything, doesn't he? A little yeah. bit of everything, but
4: uh, very good. We're going to talk about him in, in just a moment. Um, in fact, let's just go ahead and skip to that. Uh, because we're talking about Juan Brown uh, and the uh, Blanco Channel uh, item E, and then we'll go back to D. Um, there is an update on the um, the Kobe Bryant S seventy six B uh, helicopter crash in Southern California, and uh, another one that we recommend that you watch and listen to um, because um, Juan has a friend, and his name is Scott Monroe and he had scott on and he's a um, a professional helicopter uh EMS pilot and had some really really good insights as to uh what he thinks may have happened in the um, helicopter crash that killed 9 including Kobe Bryant and Kobe's uh, daughter and others um and i thought wow i mean it's really really interesting perspective from his you know, his his point of view and we recommend again that you watch that and there's another item here um that uh, refers to oh that's it a, a new york times uh, article that i included here in the in the show notes and the headline of this article i think is extremely misleading it says helicopter in kobe bryant crash wasn't legal to fly in poor visibility well not actually technically correct. They weren't legal to fly in instrument flight rules because the company didn't have a certificate to operate using IFR or instrument flight rules. Uh, they were flying in very poor visibility. Uh, we talked about the VFR and, and special VFR visibility requirements, and uh, so um, that is a little mis- uh, a little bit misleading, but We're probably thinking that uh, for most people that read the New York Times, if they see they weren't legal to fly an IFR, they would go, what the heck does that mean? So I guess they were trying to maybe dumb it down a little bit. But uh, uh, when the helicopter carrying the basketball legend Kobe Bryant crashed into a fog bound mountainside on Sunday, killing all nine aboard the pilot who was struggling to avoid the class, did not have the legal authority to navigate with his instruments because the aircraft owner did not have the necessary federal certification. And uh, as we've heard from several different sources, uh, most of these companies, especially in Southern California because of the weather, um, almost all of them uh, operate only under visual flight rules, not instrument flight rules, uh, because they really don't need to um, fly in instrument flight rules at all I mean it's a very rare or uncommon situation that, that they would need to do that so um
5: which would which would add another later extra layer of cost uh, in mm-hmm. keeping proficiency and keeping the aircraft uh, up to uh, IFR standards and etc yep. etc et so yeah absolutely
0: uh funnily enough I was listening to uh opposing bases uh today uh, their show that's just come out and uh AG an experienced uh A helicopter pilot made a few comments, and I was trying to relate this to the sort of conditions that I might meet if I was flying. I did did a lot um, of low-level flying when I was uh, a Hawk instructor, uh, and we'd be beetling along, and the weather could easily be quite poor. And um, if we ran into bad weather, we couldn't turn around, go the other way, or find a way through it. We would do, an, if it was unexpected, we'd do an emergency pull up, you know, pitch the aircraft with full power, 30 degree no, nose up, check the speed brakes were in, and climb the aircraft at a very steep angle until we got above the safety altitude. And uh, he was saying, of course, when you're flying in very poor condition in a helicopter, uh, you'll have uh, slowed the helicopter down uh, and you'll be flying along, you know, uh, with poor visibility um, at slow speed uh, and low altitude. And if you then go uh, India, Mike, and you lose sight of the ground and you have to climb, you're actually in a pretty poor situation. And I was going, oh, yeah, you would be, because the last thing I would do in a fast jet is slow it down because the visibility is bad. And if anything, I'm going to speed it up because I know I might need that energy to pull for the moon if uh, I lose sight of the ground just in case there's a brick wall in front of me. Mm-hmm. So uh, the fact that, you know, in a helicopter, you naturally start by slowing up to, uh, you know, increase your uh, the time it takes for you to reach something mm-hmm. uh, gives you a real problem if uh, you go in a cloud.
4: And it appears that based on the data that we have from this crash or this accident, that uh, at the very end, it looked that like he was trying to do just that, trying to rapidly climb to get above the cloud uh, and then also transition from um, v- VFR or you know visual references to the outside to instrument flying. And uh, I would imagine all the various forces that your head would be experiencing at that point would be very difficult for somebody, especially if you aren't super proficient in IFR flying or if you haven't done it in a while. So yeah. Anyway,
0: good stuff. More, more to come, more to come.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, anyway, check out um, the um, Blanc Illyrio channel. It'll be in the show notes. Nick, would you like to take this uh, item D, please?
0: Oh, oh, yeah, most certainly. This is um, very sad, um, but uh, it's nice to be able to recognize uh, this chap. It follows the death of one of the few remaining Battle of Britain pilots, uh, Wing Commander Paul Farnes, DFM, who had uh, reached the age of 101 um, and had been fit enough last year to attend a a service of of commemoration. So um, he was doing amazingly well, but, of course, how fragile life is at that kind of an age. Uh, He was a tall and distinguished man with striking silver-gray hair uh, that he retained throughout his life, uh, Life, lucky man. Uh, he was also known for plain speaking and was very generous with his time. Um, from what I can gather of uh, of Paul Farns, he'd uh, wanted to join the Navy uh, for, in the Second World War, but a friend persuaded him that the RAF would be far more fun. And uh, so he joined the RAF Volunteer Reserve as a non-commissioned officer, a sergeant, and subsequently flew in the Battle of France, which he described as a complete shambles. He was um, covering the Dunkirk evacuation, and then he flew during the Battle of Britain. And indeed, on the last day of September, whilst flying his malfunctioning Hurricane back to Kenley, he encountered a Junkers 88 flying directly towards him. But he managed to get behind him, open fire, and brought it down, even though his own aircraft was having a few problems. He was uh, still a sergeant when he was awarded the Distinguished Flying Medal, That's the equivalent of the DFC, which is only awarded to officers. But he was very proud of his DFM, and during a recent interview, he said that he wouldn't swap it for two DFCs. Uh, He was promoted eventually uh, to become an officer, and he served in Malta North Africa and Iraq. And by the time uh, he reached the end of the war, he had flown Spitfires, Mustangs, and Hurricanes, and was... uh, an ace, having shot down six enemy aircraft, one probable and six others damaged. And his tally included bombers such as the Heinkel 111 and fighters like the Bf 109. He was commissioned during the war and commanded two squadrons. And at the end of the war, he remained in the Royal Air Force, not retiring until 1958. By that time, he was a wing commander. Now, during the Battle of Britain, the RAF only had three thousand pilots, of whom five hundred and forty-four perished during uh, operations at the time, and now there are only two left alive. Sadly,
4: wow, one hundred and one. Wow, yeah, remarkable man, and what a uh, what a service um, record. That's yeah, amazing.
0: absolutely brilliant, isn't it? It's lovely. But uh, they're getting fewer and fewer, uh, and it's uh, so sad, but uh,
4: inevitable, I'm afraid. Yep. Well, yeah, inevitable. We lost another one. You said two are still remaining?
0: Yes, we do. Yeah, there are two still left alive, mm-hmm. but uh, they're both 100. So well, I don't know how long that, they're going to
4: be around. Probably not a long time. No. All right. Well, thank you. Um Moving on to F, which is, um, oh, I think it was the last episode we talked about the, yeah, oh, we got oh, some sorry great-
3: Jeff,
0: I, I should have mentioned that, that that piece was sent in by Rich. I just blasted oh, okay. straight into it, uh, Rich, and he asked me if I'd ever had the chance to meet uh, Paul Farns, and the answer is sadly no. Oh. Oh, well. But thank you for sending that in, Rich. Yes,
4: thanks, Rich. Okay, item F, uh, the, I think it was last episode we talked about the Q400 uh, nose gear collapse, and in fact, we had some great audio feedback from one of our community members, Fabian, who flies the airplane, and guess what? Yet another Dash 8 problem with the nose gear. Uh, WestJet, De Havilland Dash 8 registration, Charlie, Truck Kilo, Whiskey, Echo, performing flight. Fuckway. Fuckway uh 3107 I'm glad it wasn't Fox Kilo Mike Echo um from Vancouver to Terrace British Columbia never heard of that with 42 passengers four crew landed on Terrace's runway 33 at 2106 local time but suffered the collapse of the nose gear and came to a stop on the runway the passengers disembarked onto the runway and were taken to the terminal and the airline reported a partial nose gear collapse and again that's the only data. There's a picture of it with its collapsed nose wheel on the uh on the runway. And um not sure if uh, this incident was another one of those wheelbarrowing things where you touch down on the nose gear first, or perhaps maybe some previous flights had done so and the thing had held together long enough until this flight and then <laughs> when this crew was flying it, uh, when they put the nose wheel down, it just boom, collapsed.
5: You and know pretty- I- sorry, Dana. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm just wondering, and this is just, I have i have a really good buddy of mine that now flies the Spirit, you've met him. It's my buddy, Dave. Mm-hmm. Love this airplane, has a lot of experience with this aircraft. I'd have to reach out to him, but I don't ever remember this airplane ever having this particular problem on a regular basis at all. So I'm just wondering if it's not one of two problems. One, they're just becoming... Uh, stressed because of all the, you know, the short hops that they do and the lack. And maybe there's not an inspection program that's uh, really looking at it closely enough um, and maybe not finding cracks in, in, in the, the nose gear. Or whether it might be that there are a lot less experienced pilots flying the aircraft now and the way that it, uh, you know, it performs uh, if you're not careful with with a slightly nose low attitude, as with the the CRJ 200 mm-hmm. same type of attitude in the approach, uh, without the leading uh, slats on the uh, on the leading edge, um, I'm wondering if it's not uh, also possibly uh, more more stress on the nose gear because of the way that the aircraft is being flown by less experienced pilots on a regular basis. That just could be. a couple uh, just a couple guesses I, and I don't I, there's no there's no basis for my for my uh, you know um, uh, my summary or, or analysis but certainly this possibility there
4: I mean I think that um,
5: either of those could be
4: factors and I'm wondering if you know I'm not seeing uh, a lot of incidents of the maybe it's just a beefier nose gear assembly on the uh, on the CRj 200 but I'm not I don't recall seeing more incidents of nose wheel collapses on that airplane, but
5: the 200 is 200s notorious for the mains collapsing. Oh, really? Yes, okay. uh, they've had a lot of issues with the mains. They had to go back. I I don't remember the specifics on it, but I mm-hmm. do know they had uh, they probably had to go back and do some type of modification because they had a lot of. Uh, I remember I think one or two instances at uh, ASA alone. That uh, we had collapsed main landing gears. Hmm.
4: Well, we just thought we'd mention this latest uh, nose gear collapse on the uh, WestJet uh, Dash 8 uh, just for a data point. And we're kind of keeping our eyes and ears open to see if uh, this is going to be a, a trend. And, and perhaps we'll be able to find out whether um, either of those scenarios are a factor that Dana just mentioned. Um, we're going to skip G because I'm, I'm kind of hoping that, uh, Steph will be able to, um, mention this one. If not, if she's not here, uh, by the time we are getting close to the end of the new segment, we'll go ahead and uh, cover it at that point.
5: And she says she's on six of the seventh patient, right six
4: now. of seven. Okay. That means it's probably going to be at least another hour before we see her on the show. So, um, yeah, we'll just, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and just make the assumption that she's not going to be in t- uh back in time for the uh the new segment here so I'm going to go ahead and cover it sorry stuff. Um this uh accident is a my cargo, uh, not yours, my cargo. Uh 747-400 at Damam, I think. I'm not sure if that's the way you pronounce that or not and Jeddah on the 1st of February 2020. Tail strike and uh, on departure, uh, a My Cargo Airlines 747 400 freighter on behalf of Saudi Arabian Airlines registration Tango Charlie Mike Charlie Tango performing flight 919 from Damam, Saudi Arabia to Zaragoza, Spain struck its tail onto the runway during departure from Damam's runway 16 right. The crew stopped the climb initially at 7,000 feet, later climbed to flight level 100, 10,000 feet, and subsequently decided to divert to Jeddah. The aircraft climbed to 15,000 and further to 18,000 for the flight to Jeddah and landed in Jeddah without further incident at about two and a half, no, almost three hours after departure. The aircraft is still on the ground in Jeddah about 21 and a half hours after landing. That is that when this was actually written. Um, So it has some pictures here of the uh, tail scrape on the back of the 747. Definitely some pretty significant damage. And our good friend Miami Rick and uh, host of the Airline Pilot Guy show was tweeting about this. And as he is wont to do, he provides a lot of information to uh, folks who follow him on Twitter. If you want to follow him. That's at Miami underscore Rick. And so uh, he starts off with this breaking news item that which we've just covered. And then he says, there are various cross checks and verifications in place to prevent this potentially fatal error from happening. And one final tried and true method I've used ever since my early days of airline flying is to learn to gauge proper acceleration. How you ask this works in every jet, big or small, heavy or light. The moment you select takeoff thrust, simultaneously start your chronograph. I don't know. Do I have one of those? Oh, he means um, clock. Okay. Yes. He certainly has a chronograph. Yeah, he has a huge one. That's yeah. what she said. Um, if your numbers are spot on, you will always reach 80 knots by 20 seconds. That's balanced field. Not every takeoff is so. You'll usually get 80 before 20. So... 80 knots at 20 seconds. This gives you an idea of whether the aircraft is adequately accelerating, and if it isn't, you are still very much in a position to make a low-energy reject, taxi off, regroup, examine, and try again without getting the brakes hot. This will save your life, or at least save you a trip to the chief pilot's office. Um, and then uh, somebody responded, uh, What is a zero-fuel weight figure uh, plane with cargo but without fuel? And then he says, the weight of the aircraft, freight, passengers, crew, and operating fluids minus the fuel. So basically, what the airplane weighs, uh, everything except fuel. Uh, What do you think the chances of a hull loss is with such an old airplane? He said, careful cost and benefit analysis will very likely take place and a decision made based on the outcome. Certainly sad to see a beautiful bird have her wings clipped before her time because of such an avoidable situation. Um, anyway, another person, uh, replied saying, isn't it that pilots just set the throttle levers to the same takeoff thrust, regardless of weight acceleration and runway used will be a function of weight field, altitude, and temperature. Am I missing something? Uh, he says, no thrust setting is a function of weight, runway length, airport elevation, obstacles, weather conditions, and other factors. The idea is to use as little thrust as necessary to preserve engine life and, uh, B.C. statistically, oh, because statistically, an engine is much more likely to fail at or near max thrust. Uh, And then somebody else said, do you think pilots reject takeoffs too infrequently? And he said, it's not a question of frequency. It's a matter of safety. One of the factors the captain weighs is the decision to abort the takeoff or in the decision to abort the takeoff is whether the airplane will be able uh, will be unable or unsafe to fly. If so, a reject is warranted. But oftentimes, the safe course of action is indeed to fly. And then finally, Ken Hoke. Um, we all know him here on the uh, uh, in the aviation podcasting world. Uh, he um, also goes by his tag at aerosavvy, at A-E-R-O-S-A-V-V-Y. And he says, what Rick said. In the sim, they fail stuff at different phases of takeoff. Captain quickly decides to reject or fly. Boeing has guidelines to make it easier. Uh, Here's a fun one. Captain's window slides open above 80 knots. Uh, At UPS, we continue and close it when safely airborne. And that's the same procedure at ACME. Thankfully, it's not happened to me yet, Dana. (laughs) The window sliding open during during the takeoff roll.
0: Does that mean, does he mean automatically opens at 80 knots? What is it? No, no, no. To keep uh, kept uh,
4: awake or something? No, I think that he's saying, like, a scenario. Here's a hypothetical. Ah, yeah, if yeah. the uh, yeah, no. yeah,
5: yeah. Yeah, no. I'm joking. If you oh, fail okay. to lock the window, and then you know, the air loads, as they increase, open the window for you, yeah. Yeah, yeah. then you continue to take off roll. Wait a minute. No,
4: there is a switch on the console that says automatic window open. So there you go. maybe he just accidentally hit that. <laughs> Just get it.
0: So um, uh, basically, Rick saying that he—I'm—I'm I'm guessing by the the tone of his thread that uh, these guys used the wrong thrust setting for their weight.
4: I, you know, if you're reading between the lines, it seems to be what he's saying. I'm—I'm not, I'm not sure though. Um, well,
0: I would certainly say that was uh, would be a major cause of uh, tail strike, uh, as well as, of course, environmental conditions. Oh, you know of what? Or uh,
5: CG shift.
4: It would have helped if I had yeah. read the very first um, tweet that he made. <laughs> I skipped it. He says, when this happens 99 times out of 100, it's because the crew used an erroneous zero fuel weight figure to calculate takeoff thrust figures, which results in slow acceleration, long takeoff run, and panic pull to get the jet airborne before the pavement runs out. Very expensive. So yes, uh, to answer your question, Nick, I think that's what he's saying. Yeah. And I should have read that right off the bat. I didn't. Sorry. That's oh,
0: right. Um, I think one of the things we should possibly discuss, though, is their decision to uh, continue on for a two and a half hour flight, mm. uh, and their decision to climb the aircraft to flight level one eight zero because. Uh, Even, you know, we on the Airbus had a tail strike indicator. Eventually, they they sort of retrofitted one uh, after a few tail strikes. But if I had suspected there was a tail strike, I think there are two actions I would not do. I would not go away somewhere else unless, of course, the airfield I took off from had lousy weather or a very short runway or some very good reason why I couldn't go there. The second thing is I wouldn't climb above flight level 100. Uh, both of which this crew seemed to have done,
4: because well, out of concern for the fact that you may have cracked the pressure bulkhead, and oh, exactly, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, and you don't. I mean, we've had major accidents. Remember that seven forty-seven that uh, the Japanese airlines yep. that I think was still their biggest passenger loss ever.
4: Mount Fuji. was,
0: uh, yeah, was a failure of the uh, rear bulkhead. Um and uh, which severed all the hydraulic lines, mm. and um, uh, you know, you just don't want to put yourself anywhere close to a situation like that. So yeah. yeah, my feeling would have been dump and land, and then take a look at the damage. If it was insignificant, which of course it wasn't, right? And I'm I find it a bit surprising that the crew didn't realise that. Certainly, if they'd listened to the cabin crew in the rear galley, <laughs> well, they would probably would have told them, yeah. <laughs>
4: Apparently uh, it the, makes quite a huge noise when this happens in the very, back. yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Mm. yeah. So, uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the crew were thinking, uh, trying yeah. to make the best of a bad deal, uh, but I don't think that was a particularly wise decision.
4: Good point. Good point. All right. Um, we have an update on the, uh, Boker 100, uh, crash back, uh, the airline, um, at Almaty or Almaty is that what you said that way Almaty yeah. on the 27th of December you know they lost height shortly after takeoff and it was suspected that icing could have been or may have been the uh, problem um, it turns out that in the information uh, that we have as at present the decision was made by the captain to have the 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 tail, the stabilizer, the horizontal stabilizer, de-iced, but not the wings. And they made a zero-flap takeoff, uh, which I guess is common for this airplane. Uh, So let's see. I have highlighted here. Before departure, all necessary procedures were carried out. Well, not all. Uh, The stabilizers were de-iced. The wings were not processed as they were clean. Hmm. Well, Hmm. for those of us who have seen a wing covered in clear ice, guess what? It looks really clean if you're looking at it and not doing any other procedure to determine whether or not there is actually ice on it. Um, At the first liftoff, the aircraft climbed to about five and a half meters. The speed decayed. The angle of attack increased. However, the aircraft descended onto the ground again. They hit the tail a couple of different times and... Um, in fact, some point, I think the first officer said reject and pulled the power back. And the captain said, I uh, took the throttles and put them, pushed them back forward again and said, no need <laughs> continue. Uh, that was a fatal decision on his part. Um, okay. Uh, reading down a couple of paragraphs here. Prior prior to departure, de-icing was only partially applied. The commander decided to not de-ice the wings. Um
5: yeah, but, uh- that's a question that that kind of pops in my mind. What was the FO looking at that made him decide that while they're in a takeoff role uh, that he wanted to abort the takeoff? And oh, they were, that, <laughs> they, were, they were already airborne. They
0: oh, were already
5: airborne and I'm, hitting the I'm runway. guessing
0: the way the aircraft was feeling, the wing drops. and uh,
5: yeah, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking back to Air Florida now. I'm thinking the engines aren't performing nearly in the icing conditions, may have not been, uh, you know, providing. Well, it was a no s- super thrust. super
4: long runway and I think they were, you know, not even halfway down that runway when they started lifting off to begin with. Um so I don't think it was the um the uh the engine issue, but I'm not sure they're still they're still uh doing some investigation on this, but here's some really good juicy stuff. On the 20th of January, uh Kazakhstan's CAA reported that the examination of the airline found a number of severe violations with respect to airworthiness of their fleet, the condition of which was generally described as poor. The CAA reported, amongst others, coupled with this, the most serious safety finding is that Beck Air has removed component data plates. These data plates have serial numbers to help track hours and cycles. This practice means the identity of engines can no longer be verified, and that hours and cycles attributed to that engine no longer provable, Several engines with this problem have been identified, which cast doubt on all aircraft engines operated by Beck Air. In addition, Rolls-Royce, the manufacturer of the Fokker 100 aircraft engines, reported that they have received no information about the overhaul of these engines since these aircraft were put into operation in Kazakhstan. Rolls-Royce also further informed the Aviation Administration of Kazakhstan that there is no procedure which would require the removal of a data plate nor would rolls royce authorize such a procedure um, during the inspection of video evidence at almaty airport it was discovered that uh, the beck air, air crews usually do not conduct a walk around or a wing check as instructed and required in the beck airs operations manual no walk around no wing inspection wow. in, in the uh, walk- a lot, wow. isn't it? i know in the, what? Fok- in the Fokker 28 through 100 aircraft operations manual, it clearly states that the aircraft must wing must be checked prior to each flight. Uh, and unusually for aircraft of this type, the manual specifies how this check must be done. This procedure was introduced as an airworthiness director direction directive, excuse me, after the 1993 crash in Skopje, Macedonia. The uh, clean wing check requires a tactical te- tactile check of the wing at three points along the leading edge on the upper surface, the lower surface, and the front of the wing. The manual states that if there is ice present, then all critical surfaces must be de-iced. Reviews of video footage of preparations of Air aircraft do not show that this check was ever completed. Training records show no evidence of winter operations training being conducted. No training syllabus was produced to show that crews are trained to identify and treat risk, uh, ice risks for this type of aircraft. Um, and then finally, just the final bit of um, drama and intrigue from this accident. On the 28th of January, Almaty's health department announced that the first officer of the flight has died. The first officer had regained consciousness on January 5th, left intensive care, was treated in a special department, On the 21st of January, he had been discharged into home care. An emergency call was received from his home on January 28th, reporting rapid deterioration of his condition. Emergency services rapidly arrived on scene, found the first officer was suffering from cardiac arrest and attempted resuscitation, however, to no avail. Wow. What a weird um, series of events on this thing. Um,
8: The other interesting
4: thing was that initially, when we were covering this, very few people. Uh, were reported as having um, fatal injuries on this accident. And the, the captain did. Of course, if you look at the pictures, you can see why, because that part of the airplane, that part of the cockpit, slammed into a brick building. Um, but uh, the, the first officer did survive initially, and then they just listed a few um, fatalities on it. But now the number has really rapidly increased. I forgot exactly how many now they're saying actually perished in this accident, but it's a lot of weird things to make you kind of and
0: scratch it your head. now says 15 people have died as okay. a result.
5: Hmm. Prob- probably the lack of the advanced uh, healthcare availability in, in that region.
4: Might have something to world. do with it, yeah.
5: Um, but can
4: you... Uh, so, and uh, Dana, if, I, I don't know if you'll remember or not, um, that um, the initial accident report we looked at, when the people were using the overwing exits to um, get off the airplane... Uh, they all reported that the, uh, the wing was extremely slippery, like it was covered in ice. So, um, yeah, I mean,
5: I mean easily slid. You can they could easily slide off of it. No yeah. problem evacuating.
4: Yeah, but I'm, my point is, I think that they're pretty sure that it was, it was ice on the wing. Ice yeah. on the wing that caused this. Uh, accident and
0: yeah and if you got the de-icing gear out to do the tailplane what's the hell's wrong with doing the wings at the same
4: time uh, you know maybe but why thought, would
0: the tailplane be affected and not the wings
4: was he like thinking well it costs so much money and it does cost a lot of money to de-ice and maybe i can save the company some money <laughs> well, <laughs> i don't that's, know
5: it's kind of not his well, job i mean, why not? I mean if, if you're not gonna <laughs> at least go out and walk around the aircraft and take a look at it you would think you'd go ahead and have the wings and tails de- de-iced anyways right with the conditions they had yeah You'd think it's prime for icing. I know
4: it's crazy. Yeah. Sad. So many people died and, you know, senselessly in this accident.
0: Uh, Gustav uh, in the chat room is asking an interesting question saying, couldn't someone invent a gadget to detect ice? And of course we do have a gadget that detects ice. Uh, It detects ice when you're airborne uh, by vibrating a little probe and um, if the frequency of those vibrations changes because the detector has got a buildup of ice on it, then uh, it brings on a warning in the cockpit, amongst other things. Um, but those don't work on the ground. No. And if you can get up and have a look, then you don't really need a detector on the wing. It's, it's an added complication. The idea is that the crew are supposed to be responsible enough to go and take a look.
4: And Dana yeah. and I are very familiar with the tactic tactile wing inspection because on the sure airplane are. that we fly it's required anytime we are all in right yeah
5: yeah and, and you know if i'm going to the airport in the morning um one of the first things that i use is my first clue whether the aircraft may or may not have ice on it is whether there's frost all over the cars sitting out in the parking lot mm-hmm. that's usually my first clue mm-hmm. second clue is of course you know, go out and do the walk around the aircraft and look at all the equipment outside, even the jetway. If the jetway has ice or anything slippery on it, that's my second clue. Third clue, of course, is going back, take a look at the wings. And the fourth clue is having the FO. Do doing the walk-around, or myself, I do do walk-arounds, uh, check the wings, and if it's any question whatsoever, then you have an upper wing inspection. So, you know, I actually do all those steps every single time I go out. And, of course, the first one, you know, looking at the cars. well, if I'm already at the airport, obviously, obviously that's irrelevant. But, you know, these are all the things that I yeah. use to clue myself into, all right, do I have the possibility of ice on those wings out there? Yep. And Very also... Cool. Especially because this is one of the things that we, you know, that we've had problems with is looking inside the engine cow. We can't do that. You can kind of get to the back of the aircraft and kind of look into it. But if you know, and where the problem is generally is when the aircraft have sat overnight, and there's unknown uh, snow precipitation that you know happened during you know one, two, three o'clock in the morning, and it could accumulate. Well, if you look at the uh, you know cars that are sitting out in the you know the the parking lot either at the hotel or even you know at the airport as you're driving in past where you know the uh, long term or short term parking lots are, you can see snow on the vehicles. Generally speaking, because they never get warm, so. That gives me another idea of whether I need to have an engine in an inspection. So these right. are just things I think about as a captain as I'm driving the airport. I don't know why this guy didn't think any of these things. I
4: think at some point in this article, it said that they are where they normally operate their flights. Uh, they hardly ever um, encounter winter conditions and icing conditions, but that's no excuse. Yeah. I mean, uh, they should be fully versed in these kind of procedures if that airplane or that airline flies to these destinations oh, okay um, so let
0: me guess you yep. guys don't get many uh, cabin crew requesting shots of them sitting in the engine intakes
4: them not very many Nope. it's no. kind of hard <laughs> to get to the <laughs> let's see I zero so far in my career <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be a big goose egg there nick I, love it, love it. I used that all the time yeah all right uh now that happened you know when when i flew the tristar but uh since then no
0: well, I bet you they don't got into the number two engine.
4: No, that's, uh, although it looks, uh, having seen that S duct in, uh, on an airplane in the hangar, uh, mm. with it all opened up, it would, uh, it would be a fun, uh, ride, like uh, one of those, uh, <laughs> slides, you know, what A great idea. It's like a big sewer pipe. Um, huge actually. All right. Moving on to I, um, Avianca Costa Rica Airbus A319-100 registration 703AV perform oh I had an N number registration that's unusual uh, performing flight 693 from San Jose Costa Rica to Bogota Colombia with 108 passengers 5 crew was en route at flight level 370 about 150 nautical miles southeast of Panama City when Panama City Panama When the crew decided to divert to Panama City due to an upset causing injuries on board and a cockpit indication, the aircraft landed safely in Panama City. About 30 minutes later, six passengers, two cabin crew were attended to by paramedics. The airline reported that the crew had received an alert on one of the aircraft systems. During the flight, an abrupt movement of the aircraft occurred. The crew diverted to Panama City. We already talked about that. Mode S data transmitted by the aircraft showed the aircraft at flight level 370 about at about 488 knots over ground as it crossed the coast into Columbia. Within a minute, the aircraft turned about 25 degrees to the right and descended to below flight level 350. Another minute later, was in a significant climb above flight level 350 to near flight level 360 at 410 knots over the ground before settling on flight level 350 another minute later. The speed over ground continued to fluctuate between 412 and 516 knots. (laughs) That's a big fluctuation. That's uh, over 100 knots. Until it settled at 449 knots about six minutes after the upset when the aircraft had turned 180 degrees to the left and was on course to Panama City. Passenger photos show a cabin ceiling cracked by impact, blood stains on the cabin ceiling, a destroyed lavatory and debris all across the cabin. A meteorologist reported there was a lot of gravity wave turbulence in the area.
5: What is gravity what? wave? Turbulence? <laughs> I was just gonna also okay. say. i so never heard of that.
4: You'll notice uh, the very right below the photo there. Do you see that little PDF um, file? Yes. Yes. Well, if you click on it, I had I ha- had the same question. What the heck is a gravity wave? And there's a a, a nice article um from aviation safety something or other um well, I'm not sure if that's actually what ASW stands for or not cuz I'm not looking at it at the moment um but it uh, talks about gravity waves and here I'll give you the uh, the the bottom line it's basically uh like mountain wave um any kind of a a, a wave that is caused by uh, a physical um feature like a like a mountain and the air you know, being lifted over the top of the mountain and um, settling. And, you know, we all, well, if you fly here in the United States, in the western area of the uh, continent, uh, you know all about gra- um, mountain waves. Now we know that the, uh, that's one type of gravity wave. Um, so there were pilot reports in the, in the hour prior and after the occurrence indicating moderate turbulence. The meteorologist commented, this looks like a pretty big, Altitude deviation due to the turbulence alone, but not impossible. Um, okay, so it was Flight Safety Foundation that put out this paper, um, a good I- explanation of gravity waves and their impact on even large aircraft. Um, so, yeah, I did the same thing you guys did. Like, what? <laughs> What's gravity yeah. wave?
0: I, I've just done a quick speed read, although it's quite a long article. And yeah.
4: yeah. Yeah, you're quite right. It's just a new, a, a different name for uh, mounting wave. Right. And I guess mountain wave is like a subset of gravity wave. I guess there must be some other types of gravity waves as well. But we're not trained meteorologists, meteorologists here on the show. It's hard for me to say that word. Um, but um yeah. So if you want to learn all about gravity waves, ITSN, check it out. And mm, yes, you're right. Well um, and then finally, Dana, you want to take this one?
5: Sure. This uh, airline that's a sister airline to us here in Atlanta, Delta Airlines, uh, is going to re-design uh, its uh, uniforms because uh, the employees have filed a lawsuit complaining about allergic reactions to the new purple garments known as the Passport Plum. Um, the Atlanta-based uh, Delta spent uh, millions uh, of dollars uh, rolling out this whole new uh uh, uniform line about a year and a half ago, but there have been a lot of uh, grumblings from the employees regarding rashes, skin reactions, and other symptoms, uh, which are uh, have been indicated by the lawsuit are causing by caused by chemicals used to make the garments waterproof, wrinkle and stain resistant, anti-static, and high stretch. Uh, so there are uh, about twenty-five thousand flight attendants and about twelve thousand airport employees customer service agents, but apparently there's a different way of uh, um, a treatment on the uh, garments of flight attendants, uh, so the airport employees haven't been having uh, too much of a problem with it. Or the uh, Because of the problem, they have uh, initially had started out with the, the requirement of an OJI certification for the a, exemption to be allowed to wear their own black and white attire instead of uniforms. Uh, But that has grown into the thousands uh, because of the fact that they dropped that requirement and they just have to indicate now that they are having a reaction uh, to the uniform. So they are now uh, in the process of of redesigning the uniforms. In the meantime, they're also looking at uh, creating a gray uniform with a different uh, um, set of, uh, without the chemical treatments on there, Uh, but they've gone through some some significant testing to see uh, what was causing the problem. They haven't been able to come up with that uh, at this point. Um, pretty much uh, that's about it. It's just uh, they 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 you know Delta is getting to the point that they uh, want everybody to be in the same uniform, have uniform uh, uh, appearance for the uh, the product image. And so they are working on redesigning everything with a no without a chemical finish, so that uh, way people are not having as much of a, a reaction to it. Uh, that's uh, pretty much summation of it. I think that uh,
4: Delta did a really great job of handling this situation. Um, and at the beginning, saying, "Well, obviously, a very small number of people are experiencing symptoms, rash, and." respiratory problems and that kind of thing headaches uh and so they said okay well if you are and you're like especially sensitive to the finishes or whatever then go ahead and you know do your own thing you know um, i guess they must have given some kind of guidelines because uh, i the i've i've seen because we uh, a lot of times we fly to the same locations uh, that delta does at acme um i've seen um flight attendants walking around and and uh, they're wearing um black uh uniforms basically black and white uh, but they, they look nice, uh, but I think what happened was that more and more of the flight attendants decided that they wanted to do that as well, and now I think it just finally got to the point where they said, okay, uh, we need to do something else here because um, we're not, the the flight attendants are not in an a, in a, um, identifiable uniform anymore. You know, you see somebody walking, in fact, I don't know about you, Dana, but I've seen some um Flyers walking around in, in the black and white uniforms. And I'm thinking, uh, at first I'm, I'm identifying them as pilots because our, uh, at Acme, our pilot uniforms are, are black mostly.
5: And, uh, well, you know, and in, that also poses a, a very significant question when you're going through, uh, uh, TSA, I mean, you're not in a, uh, company sponsored uniform mm-hmm. and, you know, the biggest thing about this is the black and white pieces are not technically a issued a company issued uniform. It's actually pieces that they're allowed to, under certain guidelines, to wear. Right, and so it becomes a security issue as mm-hmm. far as TSA is concerned. But also as a as a pilot, I mean, I can imagine if I was flying for that company, if I turn around, and I, I I look at somebody and they don't have their uh, crew ID badge on or the uh, you know the name wings. If it's just a black and white sweater, I mean, a black sweater with a white uh, shirt underneath it, I have no way of identifying if that's a passenger or a crew member. Right.
4: I was wondering, you know, when I when I heard about this initially a um, year and a half ago, I was wondering if uh, it was the same company that made the American Airlines flight attendant um, uniforms that they, they had a problem um, a couple of years before uh, this happened at Delta. And it uh, turns out that I think that there are different companies. I think
5: Yeah, I don't think Zen was yeah, involved with it.
4: I think it was like Twin Hill or something like that. I just did a quick search to see who made um
0: mind you they could be both sourcing the material for the that's uniform true. from the same stuff
4: could be could same be place
5: i mean it it's it, it the basic what it comes down to is i mean they did they tested for a lot of different uh, agents on the uh, on the on the uniform for being you know hypoallergenic and and the bottom line is they did treat these uniforms with chemicals to prevent them from you know you know make them more waterproof and more wrinkle free and and uh, prevent them from uh, you know adhering stains and and make the uniform in the the fabric and material look far more uh, you know nice. For a you know mm-hmm. for work and in in working environment for a longer period of time, but some people are just you know environmentally not uh, going to be able to accept that uh, chemical on their on their skin. So I, I think I think I agree with you, Jeff. They're, they've handled it quite well, and I think they're going to continue to move forward. With it even though you know the the flight tenants, uh, of course, what, what, what the Associated Flight uh, Association of Flight Tenant Union uh, applauded, and of course. The Delta flight tents are not unionized, but they're, they're using this kind of a, a, a stepping stone to try to get the flight tents to, to, to look at that again. And that's what I read at the union. Um, that's why I'm kind of reading between the lines at right. the, uh, the end here because, it you know, talking about pay and benefits and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So I think they're trying to use that as a ploy as well. But you know, I think in, in the big scheme of things, you know, uh Delta is handling uh, you know, this as a as a true um uh situation and they're gonna spend a lot of money to to revamp the, the uniforms again. Yeah. So you know as as a sister company to it, I, I have to applaud them for what they're doing, how they're handling it. Yeah. They almost have to do it because of the the threat
4: of uh, of the flight attendants uh, group becoming unionized. <laughs> they have to really make sure that they do this right so that uh, the flight attendants are happy with How the response. How long has the uniform been out? Um, year and a half, year I think. And a half. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, the, I'm wondering if they do put out a new uniform. At least they, you know, it'll go on, and uh, hopefully, uh, they won't have to have another cycle for a little while. So that's true. Yeah and, yeah,
5: and I'm wondering, Nick, and, and that's an interesting point. Uh, you know, with them coming out with the gray version of, you know, which which the males already have an option on, the female the female flight tenants do not. Uh, the gray versus the purple, and they're not going to chemically treat it like they treated the passport plum. Um, I, I think that that might, you, you know, resolve some of the issue, to be honest with you.
4: Yeah. Good. Yeah. Good. Interestingly, uh, Main Man Micah says, uh, uh, I think Land's End is up there in Maine. Um, it is. And he says that there is a connection between the company that made the American Airlines flight attendants uniforms and the uh, uh, company that made Delta's flight attendants uniform. So hmm, could be, now I think, you know, personally I'm thinking that some people are more sensitive than others are to these kind of chemical treatments. And I think that legitimately a very small uh, number, um, you know, had had issues, but then when more and more people are showing up to work, not wearing the uniform, I think it might be a little bit of a psychosomatic kind of a, uh, thing where they think oh yeah maybe maybe there is something wrong with these things and so i'm going to do the same thing and i'm, I'm wondering if that is a factor as well i don't know
5: sure and main man micah corrected us because he is correct ll bean
4: oh. is in
5: Maine in lands i knew that one of them was cons, up there in maine which <laughs> is owned by sears as a matter of fact oh he mentioned. so okay um you know it would be interesting if if they offered the same color without the uh, chemical treatments on it. I I would wonder if that would be a a fix that maybe that they could look at Mm -hmm. because maybe I I really believe it's probably the chemical treatments within the fabric and on the fabric that probably caused reactions. I think you're right. I guess we'll have to just
4: wait and see how this all works out. Ah, all right. Well, I think, uh, I need to find my soundboard so that I can play this getting to know us <laughs> not exactly the lyrics for that but we've made it through the news segment yay and we're still waiting for dr stuff to uh, arrive at home i think she, she stabbed
0: her last her back and
4: she's on her way yeah oh she's she's finished doing her back stabbing for today yep excellent so hopefully we'll see her pretty face uh, in the video soon. Uh, but in the meantime, we can talk about what has been happening with us. Now, it hasn't been that long since our last show. What was it, Thursday of last week? And now we're doing this on a Tuesday. Um, so um, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and leap in first because I really haven't done hardly anything. Just my normal things uh, involved with uh, music at my church and also the uh, Super Bowl game on Sunday night that was, uh, I thought, was a very, very uh, good game, Uh, very exciting uh, toward the, uh, the, especially in the second half when uh, Kansas City came back to uh, become victorious in the uh, outing. And of course, it's always interesting to see the commercials and halftime show and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I didn't get to share it with anybody else. I didn't go to a party or anything, but uh, I had fun watching it myself anyway. So, and that's it, pretty much for me. Um, let's see. Um, well, that's
0: a shame. I would like to have gone to a party,
4: but yeah, no one invited me. Well, I know. I'm, I, same here. Nobody invited <laughs> me either. If I invited, yeah. if I had invited you to a Super Bowl party, would you have flown over here, Nick, to uh, of attend? Of course. Oh, Absolutely. darn it. Well, I'll know ne- better next time then. <laughs> um, so, um, Nick, since uh, you're, you're talking at this point, um, what have you been up to since the last episode?
0: Well, there's only been one aviation-related event, really, and that was uh, the lovely visit uh, by Dave Gooch. Uh, now, there's a bit of audio, so why don't we play that, and that will probably answer everyone's questions about who Dave Gooch is and what he was doing over here. Hi there, Jeff. It's uh, Nick here. Uh, sitting in the conservatory studio, uh, you know, we get lots of visitors. We don't get that many from the United States. But uh, today I've, I've got a, a new visitor, Dave Gooch, who's come all the way over from the States to uh, come and visit family. Uh, an interesting story. Dave, first of all, thank you very much indeed. Well, thank, thank you for coming. having me,
1: Nick. It's a beautiful home.
0: Uh, you're very kind. Uh, absolute pleasure. Um, how did you get into aviation? What's your job now? What's going on?
1: Well, I uh, got into aviation. I uh, was in college, and my, uh, I grew up in the Air Force. My dad was a boom operator on KC-135s, and uh, I was going to be a, a physical therapist and realized after my first year of college I didn't want to do that. And they had an ROTC poster, so I went and uh, looked at the ROTC program, and uh, there's a, fortunately a shortage of pilots, and they let me fly. Oh, that sounds very generous it was very of them. very generous of them.
0: What did you end up flying?
1: Uh, well, not everybody can fly this plane. Uh, they only handpick some of the uh, the best and the brightest. Uh, the C-141 is what I started off
0: with. Uh, that, that's a real old airplane, isn't it? It's very old. Very old. Yes. Yeah, so so only the oldest. The uh, oldest and, and uh, at, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, if,
1: if I had hair, it would be great. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, the
0: 141,
1: I know it's a much-loved airplane. What was it like to fly? Oh, it was amazing. We got to go all over the world, and uh, I don't know if uh, Captain Jeff did it, but I did the airdrop stuff in it. So uh, dropped paratroopers and heavy equipment, and uh, uh, actually dropped uh, some of your uh, British SAS in Berlin and with some German SAS. and um, they, they, Not to get long-winded, but they, uh, I walked by the scheduling desk, and they're like, hey, uh, we need you to do something. Airdrop in Berlin. But, here's the caveat, you have to go to, I believe it was the uh, Royal Air Tattoo in 2000. Is that Upper Hayford? Is that uh,
0: uh, Ring a Bell? It might have been then. Nowadays, uh, it's at Fairford, I think.
1: Fairford, there you go. That's where it, that's exactly where it was.
0: Oh, that's so, brilliant. That yeah. was been exciting. You then went on to Special Forces
1: work on the 130s, oh, Yep, right? the C-130s, yep, in the uh, Pennsylvania Guard. Uh, and that was, I'm sure, brilliant. No, it was uh, it was very exciting and uh, probably a little bit more excitement that I had wanted out of a, a guard <laughs> job. I was looking for the air shows and the uh, the Weekend Warrior stuff, but uh, it was very rewarding to do that. Oh, that's absolutely brilliant. A fantastic career. How many years? I did 10.5 uh, on active duty and 11 on uh, with the guard, so a total of 21.5. Well, that's brilliant. Well thank done.
0: Uh, and thank you very much indeed for your uh, service. Appreciate it. Thank
1: you for your service. Uh, well, uh, we're great here. Let's slap each other on the back. <laughs> That's super. And then after the boring
0: world of civil flying.
1: Yeah, I uh, started, uh, well, I ended up getting my CFI because nobody was hiring. And then uh, I got on with uh, that company in New York that sounds like Jet Who. Um, <laughs> I was I was actually number 98 on their seniority list. And, oh, wow. Uh, and, nearly uh, the chief pilot. Nearly the chief pilot. And then uh, I believe you guys call it Ajax, uh, they called. Um, so I worked for Ajax for three years, and now I'm a 737 captain for a... Uh, large 737 carrier that's based in the southwestern part of the United States.
0: Uh, okay, I think we'll, <laughs> we'll guess at that. Um, but in the meantime, you've actually uh, been had a foot in both camps. You've flown Airbus as well.
1: Yeah, with uh, well, JetBlue, I got my type rating on the 320, and then uh, after getting furloughed at American, I went to USA 3000 and uh, flew the uh, A320, 321s there for a little while. I'm doing some Caribbean stuff and Florida charters and stuff, Apple vacations. Which gives you a great perspective
0: on both right. manufacturers. Mm-hmm. But like I, uh, I like to say, we're all professional pilots and we fly what machinery is put in front of us most of the That's,
1: time. You know, when I, I tell people that all the time, uh, you know, I had a friend that went to uh, Spirit Airlines because he didn't want to fly 737s. And I'm like, you pay me enough money, I'll, I'll fly a Metroliner. liner. Well, you know right. pretty much yeah. everything, but maybe maybe not the mad dog. But
3: <laughs> that's not funny. <laughs>
0: yeah, that that coal dust gets everywhere, yeah, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, now uh, you're over in the UK visiting family, but it's not just like the usual story
1: of visiting family. Could you tell right. us a little more? So um, again, not to get too long-winded, but uh, I'm I'm adopted. I always knew I was adopted. Grew up that way. My uh, parents were. Uh, Stationed at Milden Hall in the United States Air Force and adopted me when I was an infant and brought me back to the states and uh, I actually went to work probably about five years ago and I got a letter from the from the royal Mail and uh, turns out I had a half sister that was trying to find me so the the secret kind of got out and, on her mother 's side of the family and uh, so I made contact with her and we 've been in touch for the last few years she 's come to the United States and uh i visited them in newcastle and now i'm uh, actually coming over here to uh renew my british passport um so i flew into london last night and uh spending the night in uh london then we're going to go up to newcastle and then uh, my wife's joining me she's flying in tonight Uh, and then we're going to go to scotland and visit up there because i haven't really spent any time in scotland
0: well, the weather up there is usually a bit colder, so I hope you've brought a thick we, coat. Yeah, we brought the, we brought the heavy, so it's, it's balmy down here in the south. It is, um, and we are all balmy as well. <laughs> Look, it's been an absolute
1: pleasure. I don't want to make this too long, but it's so kind of you to drop
0: in and well, see well, it's me. It's kind of
1: you to pick me up at the train station and uh, take me, we had a beautiful Sunday roast and... Uh, sticky toffee pudding, it was very delicious. Uh, yeah,
0: and now we're going to watch some uh, traditional so we're going English to watch rugby. Some rugby and uh, yep. fifteen blokes banging heads together. There you go. And let's hope England win. Whee! Go, go England. England, go England. Uh, so have a wonderful visit while you're here. Uh, delightful to see you, and thank you very much indeed for being such a faithful follower of the show. Well, thank you, Nick. My pleasure. And back to you in the studio, Jeff.
4: Well, thank you, Nick, and and that was really a lot, a lot of funny. <laughs> A lot of funny stuff in there.
0: (laughs) He's quite a joker, isn't he? No, we got on very well. Uh, I was uh, was so uh, chuffed that he uh, took the time to – he'd only just landed that morning at like 6 o'clock or something in the morning, and um, then he uh, found his way to Waterloo, jumped on a train, down to uh, my little village, and we went out for uh, lunch, had a few beers, watched the rugby, and then packed him back on the train so he could head off, uh, go find his Airbnb, and then pick up his lovely wife, uh, Marie, the next day. And you saw some pictures of them both uh, in London uh, after our visit, um, enjoying the delights of uh, the expensive London pubs, which are all very uh, uh, old-fashioned, and they charge a bomb. <laughs>
4: so, well, You probably yeah. shouldn't use that that word, though. In the in the pubs, down.
0: possibly not. Yeah. No, no. Uh, but there you go. And uh, he, I believe, he's already on his way up to Newcastle to uh, visit his uh, his family that he didn't really know existed until relatively recently. So I think it was a great story and oh, yeah. a lovely bloke uh, and a great pleasure to meet you, uh, Dave.
4: And uh, wish you well in the future. And Dave, he's uh, just a quick mention. We talked about it in the last episode. He is uh, part of the Coffee Fund cadre. And we do appreciate that. And, you know, I was kind of expecting when he said he was um, uh, had British citizenship, I, w- I expected to him to have a British accent. And I was kind of surprised when I heard this audio recording. I went, oh, wait a minute. Sounds like an Amer- American.
0: American, yeah. American. He left uh, the UK when well he was um, adopted, when he was uh, about one, one and a half. Uh, so he so never picked young. it up. Not- not, not quite young enough to yeah. pick up a true accent, yes. But right. um, he seems to understand uh, the, the British ways fairly well. So that was uh, At least somebody does. Yeah. Exactly right. And uh, I was hoping to impress him with the prowess of uh, the England rugby team. Yeah. But sadly, uh, yeah. the nasty Frenchman over the channel there uh, did for us, and we lost. Boo. Ah. Boo. Yeah, exactly. Um, what can I say?
4: Well, very good. It was nice that um, you had a chance to to meet Dave. Um, and um, as we always say on the show here, that uh, that's really uh, one of the best things about this whole thing is our community. And uh, we're so glad he's part of it now.
0: Very much so. Very much so. All
4: right. Anything else? No, nope, That's been it for me. Okay. I just quickly, um, we uh, received some email from Jeff DeStasio, and uh, he was at the Atlanta airport uh, last week, and he said, just curious, did I see Captain Jeff walking through Terminal B in in Atlanta just now, around 2200 on the 30th? And let's see, I literally just found the podcast and was listening and checking out the website and looked up and either saw Captain Jeff or his doppelganger. Ha ha. (laughs) Anyway, hope everything is well off to GSO tonight to finish my commercial multi-engine rating this weekend. Keep the great podcast coming. Thank you. Well, he goes on. Ah. So uh, Both Liz and I um, responded and said, uh, I basically said it must have been my doppelganger. And I said, I get half of his paycheck. That's our agreement. (laughs) That's the fee. So, anyway, we both said, uh, you know, welcome to the community. Give us an update on your progress, et cetera, et cetera. And then, uh, so he was waiting for the weather to um, clear up so he could do his check ride. And then we just received this, I'm not sure when, maybe just yesterday, uh, check ride passed 33 years ago. A Delta 727 pilot gave me some plastic wings. Today, I'm on a Delta flight home with the real deal. Don't forget oh. to hand out those wings, he says.
0: How uh, cool is that? Yeah.
4: So isn't that cool? So,
3: yeah.
4: Dana and I know i know that we probably both uh at every opportunity hand out our little plastic wings to uh the young passengers and Even I've got a pair. Yeah. Nice pair oh, you I don't have there. Somebody
0: gave them to me, but somebody gave them
4: to <laughs> yeah. me. I, I don't think I would have given you any of mine. So it must have been somebody else.
5: Yeah, it wasn't me for sure. Ron <laughs> La. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so thanks,
4: Jeff. Uh, congrats on the uh commercial check ride passage and uh keep us informed of your future progress. And last but not least, until Steph gets here anyway, um Dana, you weren't here with us last week and why is that?
5: Well, I've had uh, quite a busy week uh, in the in the well actually the last 2 weeks actually uh, started off with the Atlanta Aviation social which i was able to i don't know if you can see that on Here, the me, uh, click video on because of the glare uh-huh let's see
4: uh-huh i do see no, the glare of, is still there yeah Not the glare is there
5: let's see there, there we, we go. go
4: atlanta's aviation, aviation social
5: has a, a picture of the atlanta skyline uh, the date the, and where it was held and at the bottom it says uh, your name and i put dana at the apg and went uh, to the traffic pattern podcast meetup that's what this is all about uh, and the host was derek vento um and he was uh, let me tell you what he had this thing put together it was very nicely done uh, a complete layout of uh uh food beverages including some alcoholic beverages and the amount of people that showed up from all over the place i was actually waiting for fred our friend fred from san francisco to walk through the door at any time (laughs) but he didn't (laughs) i was a little disappointed but uh you know seriously we had people all the way from california um spoke to st louis spoke to a, a, a a bush pilot that lives in salt lake city i'm not gonna list off the names, so i'm not gonna spend all that much time on that uh but meant met a an incredible amount of people in the aviation community again going there in support of Derek and his in uh, his fantastic podcast and just want to represent our uh podcast and of course, I handed out a lot of um, a lot of cards did see a couple of people that uh, are listeners to our podcast as well, so I got to uh, talk to them. So that was uh, the night before I left on the cruise. Now, the only aviation activity I've had are two things, plane spotting and riding as a passenger. Um, So fortunately, my Achilles has healed up well enough that during the cruise, I was able to do some scuba diving. Um, But prior to that point, uh, got on a 757, haven't been on one of those in a very long time. Uh, had purchased tickets and was very comfortable actually it, I was uh, for the very short flight down to Fort Lauderdale and got on the cruise ship um, got settled in uh, we had a very nice room there was 20 I think it was 26 25 or 26 of us on the on the ship we all went for the uh, celebration well my, my wife and I, Julie and I, uh, took our in-law, her parents, my in-laws, uh, for their fiftieth wedding anniversary on this cruise. So the the group that we went with, all you know, group that they know from past uh, past parties around the neighborhood, uh, and had had a fantastic time uh, on uh, the cruise ship. We left the first day it was at sea. Second day, uh, went to their private uh, island in Labadee, which was uh, very pleasant. Uh, experienced very pleasant day then uh, back on the ship for another day and we ended up down in Aruba Bonaire and Curacao, known as the ABC islands um, and uh, when I was uh, when we pulled into uh, Aruba I was uh, I didn't have my phone with me because you know, I had turned it off and left it in the safe I wish I had because uh, the airport for downtown uh, for the uh, for Aruba Island, I forget the, the actual head of uh, the, the uh, capital city in Aruba. But anyways, um, the airport just was just to the uh, south of us, uh, of the pier. And I watched in 727, something I haven't seen forever, coming down on final approach over the top of the water and uh, obviously landed safely at the airport. So that was a beautiful sight to see, uh, something I had not seen. When I say aircraft spotting, that was an amazing thing. Um, We went diving in all three locations. And uh, again, uh, my hat's off to Eric Ryback with his cards that he had uh, sent to me, Franco Maps. Uh, in all three locations, they were in all three dive shops. So I was very happy to see that that his distribution has them uh, sent out all over the place. So they were very helpful. And uh, my father-in-law, who I was very concerned about and in, in him doing a, a, a great job of, uh, in the water, he had some buoyancy issues. Um, he did a fantastic job. Uh, with his buoyancy in all five dives that we did were, were amazing. I've got lots of photographs, uh, that I took, you know, that's one my, my, it's it's funny, uh, all my, uh, all my surface photographs. Yeah. I took like three, uh, and I took 271 under the water. So I chose you where my passion is. Um, and I whittled that down to 98, I think I have it down to now, because you take, like, 40 pictures of one thing so you get the right picture. So uh, other than that, got uh, got back on the ship in Curacao after our final dive and came back home on Sunday just in time to uh, have to choose between four different invites on, uh, on Super Bowl party. Sorry, Jeff. Um <laughs> to watch the fantastic game however about halftime we were done i mean we were just so exhausted we drove home and and i didn't even finish watching the rest of super bowl um and went to sleep uh that's about it i am really looking forward to going back this week because my achilles tendon has finally uh healed well enough for me to go back to work so i will be uh, hopefully this week posting my schedule for the upcoming month but i have back-to-back milwaukee overnights coming up on sunday and monday um and uh looking forward to getting into the saddle again i really miss it so that's all that's been going on with me great so if we have any listeners in the milwaukee
4: area make sure you contact dana and
5: we have one way up there, and he and you know who he is helped us out with the uh, with the oh um, yeah Madison, yep
4: that's the, right that's uh, not
5: far from uh, Milwaukee isn't it No, it's only about an hour. I'll probably reach out to him and see see what Uber he's Frank. up to. Uber Frank,
4: yeah man, he's Uber our Frank. man. Yeah,
5: so in oh I forgot to mention one thing. I got the right size from George Nolly. If you, I move my microphone away, you can oh, see yeah. they're ready for takeoff uh, t shirt. I am. Sporting it fits me quite nicely George thank you very much for getting the right one and when I see dr. Steph's, Steph I'll make sure she gets the size that will fit her um what else there was one other thing I was going to mention I can't remember All right. but anyways that's that's about it uh, great oh uh, I was gonna say that it was such that that Derek did such a great job that there's only one other aviation event that I can ever remember going to that was better than that and that's when we were in oshkosh and we had that whole entire week uh of being in the in the camper with all of our you know all the people that love aviation come to spend time with us um and that really was a lot a lot of fun as well but he did such a great job with that it was it was truly amazing event let's have to say that
4: all right well very good Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks! No thanks! I love coffee, I love tea, I love the APG
3: community. Coffee and tea, and the Java and
4: me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right, the Coffee Fund. We play that when we talk about our wonderful coffee bar club coffee fund cadre members because they contribute to the show via the coffee fund and a couple different ways to do that um the first is the cafe <laughs> cafe the coffee fund classic method and since the last show we have anthony kirabella randolph Ackerman, mazus karim and alan Loveday. um Those were all via the Coffee Fund Classic Method. Um, And the other way to uh, contribute to the Coffee Fund is to become a patron of the show via Patreon.com. And since the last episode, we've... No, we don't have any new patrons. Never mind. Well, it was only a few days ago when we had our last... And we had several, like six new patrons. So anyway, check it out if you're uh, interested in contributing to the show, you can do it Coffee Fund Classic Method or via Patreon. Information about all that on our website, AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. Oh! You hear that music? You know what that means? That means Dr. Steph is in the video. And I'm trying to Get all that fancy stuff that I say, but I don't need to because everybody knows who she is and what she does.
9: It's all right. I'm just hoping that my video is actually still working because now my screen has frozen again.
4: Oh, it is. You're moving. I see your mouth moving. We can hear you. Good. It's a good thing. Okay. Yeah.
9: So (laughs) glad I could finally join you all. And I'm glad that my computer has finally decided to also allow me to do that. So, yeah, um, good to be here. You guys listen to a little bit of this show. uh, End of the news, I think, on the way down here. Okay. That was good.
4: Yeah, hopefully you weren't listening to it while you were stabbing people in the back.
9: No, I was not. Probably
4: not a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, so, uh, Steph, so far we've covered all the news and we've uh, kind of done our part for the uh, getting to know us uh, segment. And we were mentioning that it's only been a few days since we recorded last, so probably not a heck of a lot going on. Well, wait a minute. Uh, Somebody like you, probably a lot has happened.
9: You can squeeze a lot into a few days here. Um, None of it uh, for me as well. It doesn't sound like anyone did any real flying or anything, some Mm -hmm. aviation-related stuff. Uh, No. Personal flying, but back on an airplane again. Um, lots of travel recently. Um, this time down to the Tampa area of Florida, which is where my grandfather lives, and he is. Oh, hello. Sorry. Uh, oh, that's all
4: right. Somebody's at your door. I think.
9: Yeah. No. <laughs> my computer is like loading all kinds of stuff now, and I have no idea why. It decided to turn all the sound back on, so that's good. Um. So yeah. So I went down to the Tampa area to, which is where my grandfather lives, and he's getting a little up there in years. Um. I was off on. Uh, the year i thought he was born so i think he's actually 93 and a half i was wow. saying 95 I was just rounding up yeah um, either way doing well
4: mid-90s um
9: yeah mid- 90s had um has had some uh health issues challenges recently so he's um eh, doing some rehab right now so I had a chance to go down and spend some time with him and also help uh, just take care of a few things um the biggest thing ended up uh, being that he actually needed a new phone so it took the better part of the two days i was down there to try and uh, get that set up and then you know, ex- teach him how to use it, even though it's essentially the same
4: phone. He didn't but pick it up it was- <laughs> for like right off the bat. He,
9: he he does very well with it. I'm not not trying yeah. to say anything, you know, but you know, it just takes a little bit of time and, and just a little you have to slow things down a little bit, which is difficult for me to to do even just speaking. So um but yeah, it was good. It was good to see him. Um my dad was down there as well. Uh we watched the Super Bowl down there. I heard you guys talking about that a little bit. So mm-hmm. our our party was um in rehab room number whatever it was, um, <laughs> we had a nice, nice like uh, a ninety-inch
4: uh, screen or something, probably, right?
9: Probably. Yeah. What would you say that was? Like twenty-inch, maybe? Oh, yeah.
0: Well, like, I might just point out a little bit of confusion there in England. Uh, rehab is somewhere you go if you've got a drug addiction. Well,
9: this is we this call is, it
0: convalescence. Mm,
9: okay, we call it. Well, this is a skilled nursing facility which has physical therapy, occupational therapy, that type of thing, where Sounds you go when you very need. good that type of help yes
4: but we also call that we also call drug, drug, drug and alcohol rehab yeah.
9: rehab you just yeah. have to know for context
4: <laughs> yeah. yeah come on Fair try though. to keep up with us <laughs> yeah i'll do my best uh,
9: so but fortunately the uh Publix and the pizza hut were right uh-oh room and that was a lot of fun and then because i didn't want to this was me i didn't want to fly home in the middle of the super bowl because that just who does that um, I decided to fly home the following morning and go straight to work. So I had a 5 a.m. flight and then I worked all day yesterday and I came home and went almost immediately to bed, got about nine and a half hours of sleep last night, and I feel great now.
0: Oh, that's good. Yeah. You'd have got a, any seat you wanted on a, if you'd flown on during Super Bowl, wouldn't you? Probably. Hmm.
9: But I, I don't remember much of that 5 a.m. flight because I think I fell asleep before we even pushed back from the gate. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Only and then I was disappointed
9: that. that we were actually early, because I was planning on sleeping wanted for a few more minutes. Wanted some there. more sleep. I wanted some more sleep, <laughs> and then I got. I went straight to my office, and I went in to get start Friday because it's a Monday, and Monday is usually busy. Only to find out my first two patients of the morning had canceled. I'm like,
3: oh, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm gonna take a nap somewhere else. <laughs> wow. Yep.
9: But it gave me plenty of time to kind of, you know, I wasn't sleepy or tired at that point. But by the time I got home, I was, I was ready to recover. Aren't
0: there plenty of treatment beds you could grab forty winks on?
9: Mm yeah, kind of, but no,
0: no, no. <laughs> not very professional.
9: Huh? Not, not, not really.
0: Someone walks in to yeah. find, find the doctor fast asleep. Yeah. No?
9: And, and truly I was fine. It was just by the time I got home, I was, I knew I needed to recover. That's all. So
0: cool. Well, I'm glad it all worked out so well. I'm glad you're caught up. I think.
9: Mm-hmm. And I was very pleased to find that the, because um, nothing was open in the Tampa airport at uh, five o'clock in the morning, there was a coffee place open, but they didn't have my beverage of choice, which would just be a chai tea latte. But the um, uh, the American Airlines lounge was conveniently located adjacent to my gate. So I just wandered in there and got some some breakfast and wandered oh, nice. right back out, got on my flight. That was nice.
4: You're one of those fancy pants, uh, multi-zillion milers, right?
9: well apparently there's people out there with more miles than I have still. Oh, so. really? Not um, many.
4: Yeah. yeah, not many. <laughs> Quite a few. <laughs> Based oh. on
9: the the upgrade lists I see sometimes. Like, really? Okay. Yeah.
4: Wow. All right. Well, we're glad that you were able to join us. Um I hope that you're uh you have a a beer opened up and
9: Uh I actually I pulled it out of the fridge but I didn't even get a chance to open it yet cuz I was right. messing around with the computer, so let's right.
4: uh Uh Love that sound. That's pretty good. All right. Cheers. So, cheers to you and cheers. here my sparkling water.
9: I did grab some pretzels here too. You can probably see it in the corner of the picture. Cheers.
4: I'm going to drink my lemon water.
0: My gin and tonic. Ooh, okay. Nice. I'm
9: glad someone else is also having alcohol. <laughs> <Thanks>. So,
0: <laughs> Nick, do you recognize this thing? Uh, yeah, that looks like one of those really natty uh, Yeti.
4: Um, yeah,
0: stubby, I will
4: call it a stubby holder. What do you call it? Oh uh, well yeah no don't call it that um i call it um it's like a koozie or something uh, like a stainless koozie. Good. A, a yeti i saw them uh, nick and jilly were using them at uh, their wonderful home and i thought you know i think that i should get a couple i gave one to chris i thought um, you he'd know appreciate i think i have that. some of
9: those too yeah
0: you don't need to put a, a pad in the bottom of yours though because your cans
4: fit Yes, my can fits just nicely. <laughs> Good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, just a warning to anyone British who gets one of those: our cans are a little
4: small, so a you little, a little like stubbier. Nothing in the bottom. Yeah. Yes. Um, also, uh, you can't see it, uh, but just to the left of this big screen TV right behind me is a uh, a wonderful uh, coffee making device that i was exposed to at nick's house as well and i found a really good deal on it what else were you
9: exposed to well no, yeah. i was exposed I to will. a
4: lot i wonder uh, yeah we're
9: glad that you came back in one piece
4: <laughs> i have a full-size cardboard cutout of nick never mind <laughs> i'm just saying thinking of things that i was exposed to uh, but it's a family Poor show for you. you yes so oh. how are your nespresso's Oh, they're wonderful. I'm having just the best time trying to figure out which ones are my favorite. And uh, <laughs> good yeah. luck with that. Yeah. Take Fair. notes. It's very nice. Very nice. Uh, all right. Um, I think uh, now it might be a good time for us to continue with the show. What do y'all think? Yeah, you bet. Sure. All right. Let's start off with, um, well, you know, what? Nick, do you want us to, because I don't know how you're feeling right now. I know it's getting no, kind of late I'm for pretty you.
0: good. Let's, let's carry on. It's Keep only, going. Uh, it's only just got nine here, so uh, okay, I'm, I'm good for a little while.
4: All right. Very good, then. Uh, we'll wait a little bit longer uh, before we do the uh, plane tail. So let's dr- just dive right into our feedback.
1: Captain, incoming message.
4: All right. Let's start with item number one from Captain Steve. Yay. Uh, He sent us a link to a YouTube video of an American Airlines uh, 767 flight, no, 777 flight um, coming into John F. Kennedy International. And let's take a listen. I've edited this, by the way, from the video. So let's uh, take a listen. Hey,
10: Tower, American 45 Heavy
11: to 45 Heavy, Kennedy Tower, runway 4 right for the land, runway 3,
10: 3, us 4 right, American 45 Heavy. American 45 is on the go. American 45 Heavy, roger, fly runway heading,
11: maintain 2,000, I'll have a right turn shortly.
10: Yeah, there's a flock of birds right up the departure end of uh, 4, I mean the approach end. A lot of them, geese. Okay, roger. Is
11: that the reason for the go? Affirmative. Okay, to the left side or right? Right side.
10: Okay, very, good. Uh, Six four five five start Delta on the LS for it. Yeah. Uh, we, got, uh, we may have an engine problem. We request a right turn, American. Uh, back to downwind, American forty five heavy. Forty
11: five heavy, turn right, heading one zero zero, and approved as requested. Zero zero, American forty five heavy. East now off the approach end of four American forty
10: five heavy, clean level of three thousand.
11: American forty five heavy, approved as requested. Maintain three thousand. American 45 Heavy, are you able to switch frequencies, or you prefer to stay here?
10: You know what, we want to stay with you. you want to stay Right with back in on the downwind? Confirm perimeter, American 45 Heavy. You got our check-in? Turn right to a heading of
11: uh, 180.
10: 180, American 45 Heavy.
11: And uh jump to uh, 237. 5 Fox Delta, 4 right, little and with 3306. Put right, 5 Fox
10: American 45A, we're, uh, we're at an emergency right now. Uh, request uh, ARP, uh after a landing.
11: Sergeant 45 heavy Roger, I understand that. Enter right, that one for runway 4, right. we're going to head uh,
10: 220. American 45 heavy Roger. are 4859, Southwest 4, right. Sergeant
11: 4859, cancel approach. Maintain 2000, I'll return.
10: Maintain 2000, approach canceled, uh, 4859.
11: Japan Air three heavy runway four left clear takeoff.
10: Japan Air three heavy runway four left clear for takeoff. Japan, heavy, four left, two, four, takeoff.
11: 4859, you have the fields in sight. We do 4859. 4859, uh, cleared visual approach runway like four left. Runway like four left, clear to land. Cleared visual to four left. Clear to land four left. 4859. American and 4859, additionally, traffic 1 o'clock, 4 miles, 3,000, a heavy 777, that's an emergency aircraft that to be inbound to the right side. In sight, American 45 heavy, traffic 1 o'clock, 4 miles, 2,000, a regional jet, that traffic's inbound to the left side. And American 45 heavy, uh, at your discretion, let me know when you want to start the downwind turn, you have the field in sight. Field in sight. American 45 heavy, roger, let me know when you want to make the downwind turn, and you can have the left or right side at your discretion. Sorry, the base turn. Potential emergency equipment alert 2, runway 4 right. Potential emergency equipment alert 2, runway 4 right.
10: And Grant, copy the alert. If I go over to uh, 123.9, I'm at the approach of 4 right.
11: Car 9, nine. yes. Uh, hold Ultra 4 right, and you can switch the tower on uh, 119.1 now. 119.1,
12: minute
10: Take the left side, American 45 Heavy.
11: American 45 Heavy, Roger. You can enter right base to runway 4 left. Stand at 3 heavy, turn right heading 1-0-0, call departure.
10: Heading one departure Japan now, 3 heavy.
11: 5 Fox South Delta, turn left on Foxtrot, hold short, runway 4 left.
10: American, uh, 45 heavy, we're making a right turn now for the base to 4 left. American 45 heavy, roger, approved as requested. Car 99, Kennedy.
3: Shot 199.
11: Yes, subject AF now inbound to runway 4 left. Holding short of four left, uh, on landing, i like okay. to enter behind him. Car 9 roger, I understand you're at Juliet, hold short runway four left. 9-9, hold short of four left. American 45 Heavy, uh, field one o'clock, seven miles, and you have field the In Sight. Good uh, site, we're clearly to land American 45 Heavy. 45 Heavy, yes, descent, your discretion, Clear visual approach runway four left, wing
10: 3306, runway four left, clear to land. Hey yeah, visual, it's ready to land four left, American uh, 45 Heavy. and It looks like we uh, get, uh, took one of those birds on that, uh, it must have been at least 50 uh, geese on the, on the approach end of uh far right. I understand that, thank you sir. Emergency equipment is standing by. Emergency truck one,
11: subject aircraft now number one on a six mile final for runway four left.
6: Truck one, copy. 48-59, you
11: have the left here? Yeah. Okay, turn left here, left on Bravo, just get out of the way, left Bravo, get ground call, 1-2-1.9 or uh, Left Bravo, uh, we'll call press police Can Ground, rescue one. Rescue one, Kennedy Ground. Do we know which engine he's having a problem with? Uh, semi. Truck one, uh, we are unsure which engine it is, uh, we believe it was a geese, uh, he ingested a, a goose in one of the, end, one of the engines. Uh, you were unreadable, at the last. It was a flock of geese that he flew through on the approach, and it was believed he
4: ingested and hey, guess what? one of the engines, but we're not sure which engine it was. They landed safely. Great! And made it back, everybody alive, all that kind of stuff. I think they did a pretty good job of um, handling the situation. Although, I did note that um, the guy that was speaking on the radio for uh, American um, 45 Heavy, his voice changed a little bit once he realized that they were having problems with the engine. Just um, a little. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. And then he kind of calmed back down again after yeah. that after the first couple of uh ra- but uh, yeah, I guess you know that realization, oh crap, <laughs> there's something oh, this wrong with our just <laughs> could be bad like, make
9: sure yeah. we get back uh just gonna convey that in my
4: now I was thinking to myself, geese um New York, huh um january uh two thousand nine miracle on the Hudson, and this was just what eleven years later uh 11 years and six days so another you that there
9: are oh, yeah. geese in new york in I'm the vicinity of a, airport it's a There's possibility the vicinity of the airport in january
0: yes i'd like to point out the canadian as well
4: yes yeah. well that's a good very good point you have yeah. to watch out for those yeah. canadians damn right <laughs> liz is giving us a thumbs, thumbs up <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh so yeah uh job well done um they handled the uh you know they they were doing the right thing by going around to try to avoid flying into the geese, but uh unfortunately, they didn't mm. quite escape it and uh had some compressor stalling slash issues with the uh engine, but uh they did but a very nice job, yeah.
9: yep, good coordination, I thought there, everything mm-hmm. sounded sounded good,
4: yeah, actually, I was very impressed um yeah you know, they they know what they're doing there at John F Kennedy, even though sometimes we can't understand what they're saying. Uh, but, uh, the, uh, the emergency response was spot on. I mean, everybody was professional. Everybody seemed to be right, you know, on the same page uh, we're ready for the emergency aircraft to come in. And, uh, I was very impressed with the, uh, performance of not only the air crew, but also the, uh, ARFF folks and the mm-hmm. tower people, everything did a great job in my, in my, even the, even the guy that was told to get off the run, get out of here. Get, get off the runway just, just get out of the way just get out of the way
9: <laughs> we don't care where you go just just get out of the way that was right. the best i agree with steve there
4: yeah uh, me too me too
9: so um i have a funny uh just radio uh story about this on uh as overheard by uh, uh actually i was doing traffic work in the pattern i did to think of what the, where the uh, event actually happened up at um concord regional a- uh, airport uh-huh. uh this was a while back um but there was a, a aircraft landing ahead of us, um, some sort of business jet. I don't remember. And they said, uh, tower be advised. There is a huge flock of birds on final. And they said it kind of like that. Mm-hmm. So our turn, we're coming around base to final and, uh, air traffic controller gets on and goes, uh, Cessna, whatever, whatever, uh, we advised there is a huge flock of birds on vinyl <laughs> kind of used the same like <laughs> emphasis in his voice which was very funny and they were still there they were just off to the side we could see them but was it a huge it was, flock of birds it was a huge flock of birds it wow. was a lot of birds so awesome <laughs> yeah it was just funny the way it was all all the information was conveyed yeah hello so, dog
0: sounds well like- those those canadian geese are pretty damn big and you don't need uh, more than one really to really upset your day if yep. there was a big flock of them, did he say fifty or fifty? Yeah, he, he estimated five about five zero. Five zero. Yeah, 50. that that's, that's that a could really walk. spoil
4: your day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, there you go. Thanks, Steve, for sending that in. Um, we've been talking about lithium batteries on and off in the last few episodes, and Greg from down under, I believe, sent us a an audio recording. So let's take a listen.
7: Hi, Jeff, Steph, Dana and Nick. This is Greg from Sydney. i just got a couple of comments or a bit of feedback on episodes 406 and 408 with a mention of um, electric uh, planes and lithium batteries and burnt eggs, etc, etc. Um, I remember hearing um, Elon Musk once say, it was only 18 months ago or something like that, when asked, about electric aircraft, he mentioned that um, currently the uh, power density of batteries didn 't exist to make it uh, commercially viable for a um, a long haul aircraft. His indications were that the battery density needed to be four hundred watts per kilogram uh, for the batteries to to make the, to make it worthwhile. And that currently the best batteries around were only at 250, so there was needed to be basically a quantum leap to get up to the 400. And once that was done, then it'd be fine. So um, that electric beaver, um, you know, obviously only doing uh, short haul flights is uh, is probably not uh, they're not too worried about the fact that the battery, you know, is not not going to be uh, fully charged for that long. So, um, yeah, there is there's, uh, um, that. That was um, the comments I wanted to make. One other thing that I did recently read in a uh, newspaper in Sydney was that uh, Monash University in Melbourne, plus a, I think it was a German university, have um, applied for a patent on lithium sulfur batteries. And these have a much, much higher density uh, power density than lithium ion they are cheaper to produce and use water-based products and they possi- more than likely, I won't say possibly, more than likely won't suffer from the same thermal runaway that uh, the lithium-ion uh, does when it has an internal failure and this internal failure is a crack apparently in the cathodes um, which then uh, obviously overheats and causes it to, uh, to fail the uh, the sulphur cathodes don't suffer from that, so the battery density, they can get uh, the battery density right up. So, uh, yeah, that was my comments on that. The only other thing I wanted to say is that um, we heard yesterday of a, and you've probably already mentioned it earlier on in the whatever episode uh, this goes to air at, that um, uh, the crash of a, a C-130 from Colson, um, it was over here in Australia fighting fires and it was down in the snowy mountains and it's uh, unfortunately come to grief killing the three uh, the three on board and uh, the plane was destroyed by fire. It had just released its load apparently, uh, whether it uh, was in smoke or something, I don't know. The, the visibility over here in places have been atrocious. Uh, if it's not dust, it's smoke. We had rain in the Sydney suburbs here last night. Um, and the, the water was brown with the amount of dust that's in the air. Um, in some places, it's it's the visibility is 100 meters in smoke. So it's been quite atrocious over here, but uh, it was sad to hear of that accident. So thanks anyway. And um, this is Greg out. Thanks.
4: Thanks, Greg. Um, did he say snowy mountains? Yeah, that's right. I think he did. All right. Um, thank you very much for all the information regarding the battery sulfur. Uh, what do you say, sulfur cathode uh, batteries? Lithium sulfur. Lithium sulfur. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. You were
0: saying the it was the cathodes that crank
4: that causes yeah. the runaways, but. Uh, well, that sounds like it uh, holds some promise for an advance in. Battery technology and
0: yeah, but it's gonna smell like rotten eggs every time you try and <laughs> that's the downside. Wanna- yeah.
9: <laughs> uh, Nick's using his phone again.
0: Gosh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, sorry folks. Whoa. <laughs>
4: All right. Well, thank you, uh, Greg, for for that. And uh, you know what? I think it's right about time now for us to do this week's installment of the old pilots. Plain Tales. So, without further ado, let's play that.
0: The Old Pilot's plain Tales The Airman's Cross I was recently visiting a prehistoric monument. No, not Captain Jeff, but a henge within which is a circle of standing stones. It's just west of in the beautiful countryside of Wiltshire in England. Its history stretches back to the Neolithic period, and it forms part of a complex set of earthworks that have been of great interest to archaeologists for centuries. Indeed, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and is more commonly called Stonehenge. My wife and I both remember the days as children when we had unfettered access to the stones and could freely walk amongst them, but there is a more recent monument there that I had no knowledge of. It's called the Airman's Cross. The presence of this memorial to an early pioneer of aviation so clearly demonstrates the short period in history that flying encompasses Particularly when standing beside a monument that goes way back into prehistory, some 4,000 years. The Emmons Cross was erected in 1912, only 108 years ago, a mere nine years after Wilbur first took to the air near to Kitty Hawk, in North Carolina. Despite the experimental nature of flying back in the early 1900s, I find it quite surprising that, even though earlier heavier-than-air flying machines were fragile, and there was little understanding of the principles of flight, that more serious accidents didn't occur, and that it took five years before this burgeoning industry suffered its first fatality. The unfortunate chap was a passenger of Orville Wright, who had been conducting demonstration flights for the U.S. Army at Fort Myer. The brothers had an army contract to build and fly a two-man flying machine, which would then have to complete a set of trials over a measured course. In addition to the contract, worth $25,000, about $600,000 in today's money, The Wright brothers would receive a $2,500 bonus for every mile per hour of speed faster than 40 miles an hour that they could achieve. There was a committee of five officers to evaluate the Wright Flyer's performance, including 1st Lieutenant Selfridge, who had in fact designed his own aircraft, Red Wing. Red Wing was the first aircraft to fly in Canada, but Baldwin, the pilot, had crashed it. However, Selfridge successfully piloted its successor, White Wing, eventually completing flights of several hundred yards. Orville had already demonstrated their new right military flyer successfully several times, carrying a Major aloft for an hour and a quarter in a single flight. When Selfridge climbed into the flimsy machine— Orville took off and began a gentle orbit before things began to go wrong. He described the flight in a letter to his brother.
6: On the fourth round, everything seemingly working much better and smoother than any former flight, I started on a larger circuit with less abrupt turns. It was on the very first slow turn that the trouble began. A hurried glance behind revealed nothing wrong, but I decided to shut off the power and descend as soon as the machine could be faced in a direction where a landing could be made. This decision was hardly reached. In fact, I suppose it was not over two or three seconds from the time the first taps were heard, until two big thumps, which gave the machine a terrible shaking, showed that something had broken. The machine suddenly turned to the right, and I immediately shut off the power. Quick as a flash, the machine turned down in front and started straight for the ground. Our course for fifty feet was within a very few degrees of the perpendicular. Lieutenant Selfridge, up to this time, had not uttered a word, though he took a hasty glance behind when the propeller broke and turned once or twice to look into my face, evidently to see what I thought of the situation. But when the machine turned head first for the ground, he exclaimed, Oh, oh, in an almost inaudible voice. The crash had been caused by a failure of
0: the right-hand propeller, which hit a wire bracing the rear vertical rudder, and then came away completely. The wire was ripped out of its fastening, and without restraint the rudder twisted horizontally and forced the aircraft into a steep dive. Although Orville shut off the engine, and fights the aircraft to soften the impact, the flyer hit nose first and threw both men forward against the remaining bracing wires. Selfridge's head struck the wooden framework as he was ejected from the wreckage, and he was rendered unconscious. Orville was also badly injured, fracturing his hip and breaking his leg plus several ribs. These injuries would trouble him for the rest of his life. Sadly, Thomas Selfridge had fractured his skull, and although he underwent surgery, he died a few hours later without regaining consciousness. The unfortunate lieutenant was buried with full military honours in Arlington National Cemetery, adjacent to Fort Myer. Following the crash, and as a direct result of Selfridge's death, the pilots of the U.S. Army were instructed to wear large heavy headgear, reminiscent of early football helmets, for protection. It was nearly a year later before the next victim to aeronautics was to occur in this new adventure of flying. The Wright brothers were keen to dispel any reluctance in Europe to accept that they had developed a working heavier-than-air aircraft. Wilbur sailed for France with a machine to demonstrate the flyer to the public— and more specifically the military, whilst Orville was doing the same at home. The European flights impressed everyone, with Wilbur giving rise to a procession of officers, journalists and statesmen. Before returning to the States, Wilbur had a European business agent and had already set up a factory in Le Mans building Wright Flyers. Eugène Lefebvre was the chief pilot for the French Wright Company. A talented engineer, accomplished sportsman and cycling champion, he was one of many French sportsmen attracted to aviation because of the adventure and the competitive spirit that animated the first meetings of aviators. He promoted the Wright aircraft by entering in air races such as the Grande de Semaine d'Aviation at Reims and with louis bleriot and hubert latham represented france in the gordon bennett trophy this event started with poor weather but shortly after ten a m moise coffre made the first attempt to get away His little red R.E.P. monoplane furiously spluttered and struggled across the gummy field. Back and forth it went, but despite the roars of encouragement from the huge crowd, it wouldn't come unstuck. Guffroy retired in disgust when his fifteen-minute time limit was up. Towards the end of a disappointing first day, the weather eased, and Lefebvre— took off to give the crowd an early display of stunt-flying. The New York Times described his manoeuvres thus. Lefebvre came driving at the crowd tribunes, turned in the nick of time, went sailing off, swooped down again till he made the flags on the pillars and the plumes on the ladies' hats flutter, and so played about at will for our applause. For this he was fined four dollars by the judges for displaying excessive recklessness and daring. Only nine days after the end of the Reims' event, Lefebvre was killed in a crash at Jivisi when the plane he was testing dropped to the ground from a height of twenty feet. This qualified him to take his place as the first pilot to die whilst flying an aircraft, and the second-ever casualty to aviation. As the sport of flying grew, so did the distressing stories of accidents, and Capitan Fernand Ferber, a French scientist and army officer, was killed in a taxiing accident not long after Eugène Lefebvre, "'Leon Delagrange had his skull broken "'when he fell with his machine from a height of sixty-five feet "'and was crushed underneath the wreckage. "'He had been turning at high speed against the wind "'when the left wing of his Bleriot monoplane broke "'and the other wing collapsed. "'The machine plunged to the ground "'and Delagrange was caught under the weight of the motor. "'Harriet Quimby,' had the dubious honour of becoming the first woman pilot to die when she and her passenger fell from their aircraft whilst a thousand feet above the ground at the third annual Boston Aviation Meet in 1912. Slowly the list grows until also in 1912 we come across the name that can be found on the Airman's Cross at Stonehenge that of Captain Eustace Broke Lorraine. My discovery of the cross, not really a discovery as thousands if not millions of others will have passed by it whilst visiting Stonehenge, was really the colonel that started this tale, but I would have just filed it away had it not been for an interesting fact in Captain Lorraine's background. Reading about him, my curiosity was piqued by the name of a senior officer under whom Lorraine had served, Colonel Trenchard. The Lorraine family could be said to have been of the aristocracy, with a good smattering of knighthoods being awarded to the family. Eustace's mother was Lady Frederica Mary Horatia, knee-broke, and his father, Rear Admiral Sir Lambton Lorraine, 11th Baronet of Kirkhull in Northumberland, an estate which the family had owned since the 15th century. Eustace was the oldest of four siblings. He had a brother and two sisters, and as such was the heir to Bamford Hall and the estate. As one might expect from the family at the time, Eustace received a privileged education at Eton and entered the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst. He was gazetted as a second lieutenant with the Grenadier Guards on the 5th of July 1899, and promoted to lieutenant in May 1900. He fought in the First Boer War, and awarded both the Queen's Medal and the King's Medal with additional clasps. I mention this to show that he wasn't just a rich dilettante, but a fighting man. Having been wounded in 1903, he almost left the army, but was persuaded to remain and take the post of Assistant Commandant of the South Nigeria Regiment. In 1906 he was awarded the Distinguished Service Order. It was in 1908 that he met Lieutenant Colonel Hugh Trenchard of the Royal Scots Fusiliers, whilst serving under him in Nigeria in the West Africa Frontier Force. The two became friends and continued to correspond once Eustace had returned to England. It was whilst he was in Africa that Lorraine first heard about Louis Bleriot and his flight across the English Channel. An adventurous man, the news stirred his interest, and on returning to England, he managed to persuade the War Office to pay for his flight training until he was good enough to be granted the Royal Aero Club Certificate, number 154, dated the 7th of November. 1911. By this time, Trenchard was serving in Ireland, but Eustace kept him abreast of his progress, and in the summer of 1912 he wrote to him, urging him to also take up flying. Trenchard was greatly impressed by Lorraine's words, which read, "'You've no idea what you're missing. Come and see men like ants crawling.' At that time, Trenchard was looking for a new direction, and after reading Lorraine's letter, he decided to try to learn to fly himself. By now, Captain Lorraine had been attached to Number no. 2 Company of the Air Battalion, which was based at Lark Hill on Salisbury Plain, which, following the formation of the Royal Flying Corps later that year, was designated Number no. 3 Squadron RFC. Less than two months later, and exactly 13 years since he joined the army, Lorraine and his observer, Staff Sergeant Wilson, were flying a Newport monoplane out of Larkhill on a routine practice sortie. They were executing a tight turn when the aircraft fell towards the ground and crashed. Wilson was killed outright, and although Lorraine was speedily transported to Bulford Hospital in a horse-drawn ambulance, he succumbed to his wounds only a few minutes after arriving. Lorraine and Wilson were the very first Flying Corps personnel to die in an aircraft crash whilst on duty. Later in the day, an order was issued which stated, Flying will continue this evening as usual a tradition that has continued. At the site of the crash, a stone cross memorial was placed in the middle of the grass island at the junction of two roads. The inscription reads, To the memory of Captain Lorraine and Staff Sergeant Wilson, who, whilst flying on duty, met with a fatal accident near this spot on July fifth, 1912, erected by their comrades. His body was returned to Bramford Hall, and a funeral cortege proceeded through the village, accompanied by a detachment of grenadier guards, to the church where he was buried with full military honours. The title and lands moved on to Eustace's brother, but he died childless, so the baronessy died with him. Had it not been for the accident on Salisbury Plain, the village of Bramford could have been a very different place today. The cross has been moved slightly, but it's still within sight of its old location. At Eustace's suggestion, Colonel Trenchard went on to become a pilot himself, certificate number 270, and he served the Royal Flying Corps with such distinction that by 1917 he had become the Chief of the Air Staff. It was through Trenchard's determined persuasion that on the 1st of April 1918, the United Kingdom became the first country in the world to have an independent air force, and he is rightly known as the father of the Royal Air
3: Force.
4: I thought you were. <laughs> ah. Yeah, very good. No, I'm just the son of the Royal Air Force. <laughs> the I love the uh, Navy hymn that you had in there toward the end. Uh, oh yeah, no, it's, it's,
0: it is a maritime hymn. I know, but uh, well, there's it, a verse it, yeah. at
4: least in our hymnals uh, with the uh, with the air. There's like uh, the first verse is the Navy on the sea, and then there's one about I guess the ground troops or something, and then the third verse I think is. Uh, the one about the uh, uh, those in peril in the air. So
0: Exactly right. And it's a favorite, funnily enough, uh, at funerals. Uh, mm-hmm. but no, I think it's, it's great. Um, that lovely story, without that um, young man encouraging Trenchard to uh, follow him into the air, the uh, Royal Flying Corps and the Royal Air Force might have been very different animals today. So that's the reason I loved it. And I love the... Just the um, accidental discovery for me, not for everyone else, because lots of other people knew it was there, of the Airman's Cross, and then realizing there was a connection to Trenchard, I thought, wow, that's, that's fantastic. I love it when that happens, a bit of fate.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Great story. Thanks. All right. Shall we move on with some more feedback? You bet. Sure. All right. Uh, let's see. It looks like uh, three. Uh, oh uh
0: sorry sorry before you yes. move on I just wanted to uh, shout g- shout out to Greg Willett um, oh, yeah. a very nice chap who uh, did the voiceover of for um pardon me for uh, Orville uh, right so uh, I think he sounded exactly like Orville. Himself. I thought but I, I recognized that voice. Yeah. If I hadn't have known, I would have thought it was Orville actually. <laughs> I was going to say, that wasn't actually
9: person. Orville that you dug up some old, old recording tapes. You dug or... up
0: old Orville. <laughs> <them sound>
9: like <laughs> old Orville. <Yes.
0: laughs> no, But I think it was a perfect, a perfect copy of his voice. So congratulations, Greg. And thank you very much indeed for taking time out of your busy day to do that for I'll, me.
4: I will have to uh, thank him as well for his help with you that. Mean He doesn't listen i don't know <laughs> probably not i mean who has he who has three hours to listen to a show every week well he certainly doesn't he seems to be very busy uh-huh he's lying to you <laughs> um,
0: anyway sorry to interrupt
4: yeah and and if if you're not lying and you're actually hearing me right now greg give me a call we'll see that's the test <laughs> cool test yeah yeah okay um
9: You'll get a call like three years from now when he gets to the <laughs> yeah,
4: episode. Yeah, you told me to call. <laughs> uh, item three from Kevin. Uh, I discovered the APG a few years ago and was immediately afflicted with a syndrome. I always had dreams of flying, but never got around to doing anything about it until Christmas 2018 when I was given a gift that ended up being very expensive for me, a discovery flight at a local flight school. I then found and joined a flying club, hired an instructor, and I was on my way. While passing through the ATL on my way to Chattanooga, I so rudely accosted Captain Jeff on his way from one gate to another. I hope I wasn't too much of a bother. Yeah, it was kind of embarrassing. No, it wasn't a bother at all. I always loved being He
9: just thought he was being called to the chief pilot's office again. Yeah. What? what, what? what You think every time.
5: Did I do something wrong again? He's a regular visitor there. Uh,
4: It was great to say hello and shake your hand and tell you that I had a whopping eight hours in my logbook. This past Monday, January 20th, I flew out of my home airport, KFWA, that's Fort Wayne, in the Clubs 172, to meet a uh, DPE. uh, What's the D stand for again? Designated Designated Pilot Pilot Examiner. Examiner at a nearby airport. I returned later in the day with a whole punch to my student pilot certificate and a temporary private pilot certificate.
3: Yay!
0: Way to go! Nice job! Thanks. I'm glad you're all grap- clapping. Sorry, not clapping. Grap- um, <laughs> I had no idea.
9: <laughs> Cave as <a> surprise <laughs> to us a little bit there. I had, uh,
0: I, I had no idea what having a hole punched in your certificate meant. I thought perhaps he'd been banned from flying.
9: I never got a hole punched in my student pilot's yeah, I, I, I never I feel got like a hole
0: punched either. Maybe, maybe it's figuratively speaking. Maybe,
9: yeah, like, like when you go to the DMV and you get a new driver's license and they punch a hole in your old one.
4: Yeah. All right. Okay, thanks for um, that. Or, or like, your
9: passport. Yeah, your passport comes back with a hole punched in it.
4: Or like my uh, ex-girlfriend punching a hole in the, uh, the uh, wallboard or the drywall.
0: Oh, That's wait, short. that wasn't a metaphor.
4: That actually happened. Any anyway, girlfriend that can do that is probably <laughs> worth leaving. <laughs> Just kidding, of course. Uh, thanks to you and the APG panel for a great show and unknowingly getting me through. Thanks again. Always looking forward to the next great show. Kevin. And he is up there in Auburn, Indiana. And uh, great to hear from you, uh, Kevin. And I told him, uh, I, I responded right away and said, stories like yours are how I know what we're doing with the APG podcast is worth doing. Kevin, thank you for taking the time to let us know how you progressed. I can't wait to share it with the rest of the community. So we just, just did. It's mm-hmm.
9: awesome.
5: Congratulations.
4: Yes.
9: Very exciting.
5: We like uh, good stories like this.
4: Yes, we do. Um, and we're hearing more and more of them all the time, which is a really uh, uh, heartening thing. Not disheartening, but heartening. Um, Sam, number four. Um, first, I would like to say that I really enjoy the show, but I can't say that, to be honest. No, wait a minute. I would like to. Here, let me start over. I would like to say that I really enjoy the show. I started listening to the full-length episodes after being introduced to your content by Captain Nick's plane tales. Your shows are the perfect background to a watch on my general cargo ship, where I am currently serving as a chief officer. One of my favorite plane tales feature D.P. Davies, the test pilot. I would like to bring your attention to a series of interviews with him on the Royal Aeronautical Society SoundCloud, where he discusses his life and work. They are a good listen if you haven't come across them before, and then he gives us the link to that. The RAS website is a gold mine which also features interviews with Eric Brown and others. It's really worth a trawl if you enjoy aviation history. Thanks for all your hard work and accuracy on the show.
5: Huh.
4: Yeah, Huh. I, I, f- I think he's questioning our
9: accuracy there. It, I see that. It little, should have been a question uh, mark, not an exclamation.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, kind regards, Sam. Uh, he's currently on passage uh, in Estonia to scotland usually residing in london and then nick i believe you were uh, communicating with uh, sam
0: well i couldn't let that one pass without passing uh, sam a quick
4: thank you yes you're quite right okay and you uh, you you uh, uh, have indeed found this treasure trove and have used them in a couple of uh, the plain tales including the dp davies and the winkle's tales so that's awesome thank you very yeah, much brilliant
0: uh, lovely uh, that you've managed to actually find plain tails, and then the APG. Usually, it's the other way around. Um, and uh, we all trust you have a safe passage. So, uh, thanks very much indeed, Sam. And um, yeah, uh, when you're in London, uh, if you get bored, give me a shout, and let's together get together and have a beer.
4: I want to go too.
0: <laughs>
9: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> we'll give us give us plenty of notice then, Sam. Or better still, right. sail to Atlanta if you can do that.
9: Yeah, is there a port yeah. in Atlanta?
4: Probably yeah. not. No. no. Yes, mm. the Port of Atlanta. No, <laughs> uh, with all the cargo ships. Yeah, a lot of. It's a secret port.
5: It's it's close though. It's Savannah.
4: Yeah, that's true. So, and that is a very large port, actually. It
5: mm-hmm. is a very large port. Yeah, so it is a possibility, actually. Yeah, close enough that we could make it a very short jaunt down there.
4: Oh yeah, that'd be definitely worth it um this one uh item five from dave he has um a question i believe and it's an audio question so let's see i think i should push this one
12: hi everybody it's dave from the uk i hope you're all well uh, after realizing i'll never have a voice for radio like the main man micah i'll never be quite as smooth as him i think i'll give audio feedback another go My question's based around the transition from military to civil aviation, and it's uh, directed mainly to, obviously, uh, Captain Jeff and Captain Nick. Uh, I'm just interested to know what the transition is like from flying something like an F-18 to then jumping onto an A340. Obviously, it's not just a a sudden thing. There's a lot of of training involved, but I'd like to know what that training involves. Uh, And similarly from the experience that Captain Jeff has. Obviously, it's not going to be quite as technologically advanced jumping from the military to the coal burners that ACME use, but it'd still be interesting to find out exactly what the process is. There's an awful lot of um, talk nowadays about the price of training. You want to start from scratch, you've got to do your PPL, and then it's quite expensive. Some people talk upwards of £100,000 to become an airline pilot. I'm just wondering if you're already a trained military pilot, do you still have to pay? Or are you taken on at a certain level and then just trained up for uh, working in the civilian aerospace industry? Uh, I imagine most of the training originally that you pay for when you start out is based around general airmanship. Uh, I could be wrong, I don't know, but if you could shed any light on that, I'd appreciate it. Once again, thanks for the superb show. I enjoy every minute of it, and it makes my monotonous days just that little bit bearable. All the best. Thanks.
4: Thanks, Dave. Great question. Um, not sure uh, about Nick, but I can speak for myself. Uh, not not a huge transition for me because my first assignment in the Air Force was flying the C one hundred and forty one B, which is a large transport type of um, aircraft, very much like an air. Well, it's like an air- airliner. Then, after that uh, stint, uh, I was an instructor pilot in uh, the T 37. And that's quite a bit different from, you know, the kind of uh, flying that we do in the airliners. But uh, I'd already had the experience with the the big jets. So it wasn't in crew concept and that kind of thing. So it wasn't so foreign to me. I have a feeling it's going to be a different story for Nick. But I can tell you regarding your last question, as far as, um, you know, having to go you know, get all your ratings and spend a lot of money on, on that. Um, I think that most, if not all of the military pilots that are hired now, at least at ACME and other major U S carriers, uh, that it's not necessary. You, you, you take an examination in the military to get a, it's called an equivalency exam, uh, where it's, it's a very easy test where you are just basically, you know, answering multiple choice questions and then if you successfully uh complete that, then you go to your FAA um FISDO. Um what does that stand for? Flight Flight Standards District Office. Flight standards district, district office. office or I think. Something, something, like, something that. like that. Anyway, we just call it the FISDO. And then they give you the the documentation, your your certificate, and that kind of thing. So it's a uh, pretty easy peasy and no need to go out to one of these uh ATP schools or whatever to spend lots of money. Now, there were some people in my time when I was um, interviewing with the airlines back in the uh, 80s uh, that uh, went out and got their their full ATP, uh, airline transport pilot certificates. And at that time, people were spending maybe $1,000, $2,000 to do that. I'm sure it's a lot more now. Um, but it wasn't necessary. I didn't do it because I, I did some research and found that um, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be required for me at that time. Anyway, uh, having an ATP, a full ATP was not a qual, uh, not a requirement. It is now. So, um, yeah, uh, I guess the current day people are probably having to spend some money on that. So just a little bit of money, nothing compared to the amount of money people like Dana had to spend Lots. to get all the qualifications and, you know, certificates and all that kind of stuff. But, um, uh, Anyway, so it was, it was an easy transition for me, um, Dave, and now I'll let Nick kind of fill in the blanks for going from you know the the fast jets, single seater kind of uh, experience to crew concept and flying big air transports.
0: Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, the uh, boxes to tick really um, were getting a civil license, and when I started, um, you still had to do the full a t p l fourteen exams in two days um so that took about six months of uh training which uh, I did most of it uh correspondence course and then uh, time became a bit compressed, so I did two of the hardest subjects a uh, residential uh short residential course um and then sat the exams uh just a few weeks after i'd left the service. Uh, and passed all those so that was that was great Uh, and then because I'd flown uh, actually the rules have changed nowadays uh, if you've done most of your flying on fighters where they consider the thrust line to be on the center line of the aircraft you'd need to do um, a twin-engined uh, handling with engines on the wings you know stuck out there um that wasn't really a requirement when i went through the phantom was considered sufficiently um asymmetric to be able to use those time use that time without another um recall uh, but uh, i had even though i had to get a civilian instrument rating so i went up and did uh, uh, uh 14 hours flying in a uh, PA-34 or something. What's that, Dana? Some kind of... Uh, uh, I think
5: that's uh, a seminal, Seneca?
0: Seneca Seneca. Uh, Seneca. Seneca sounds favorite. I think the 32 um, is
5: PA, the seminal.
0: Yeah. And so I did an instrument rating. That cost, and that and the ground training fees cost me about uh, 14 grand, I guess. Um, and that gave me the license... And I was lucky that with coming up to 5,000 hours jet time, um, that I was able to get into an airline like Virgin Atlantic straight away. whereas other guys would have to perhaps get more experience on jet and more experience in different types. So I was lucky. I was straight straight in. That's the academic side of things. The practical side of things, um, funny enough, the flying really wasn't a problem. Civil airliners are not hard to fly. They're not meant to be hard to fly, and they're generally speaking, particularly the modern ones, they're not hard to fly. So I didn't have any problem learning to fly the airplane. I can be nice to people, I sometimes, uh, and I had flown with a, a crew member um, for a lot of my career. So, and since most of our uh, operations are two pilot, it's not that much different having a pilot and a navigator, having a pilot and a pilot. Um, So I didn't find that a big step. Um, No, uh, the hardest thing really was learning um, the mindset of civilian pilots and um, the strategic element that goes along with flying really long trips. You know, there are elements of that you don't think about, Um, you know, depressurizations, fuel uh, considerations, engine failures, all that kind of stuff. So that was a big learning curve. Uh, that was the hardest bit, uh, and also just um, shrugging off my military expectations and realigning my mind to what happens in a civilian company. So that was the hardest bit, but it wasn't even that wasn't very hard. So personally, I yeah, didn't find it too difficult. Uh, others did, others found it an absolute breeze and did much better than me. So I guess I
4: was middle of the road. Ah, that can't be right. You're so modest. Very true. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Very good. I think we answered all those questions. I hope so. I hope yeah. a, a good, good, uh, good question, Dave. Yeah. Thank you, Dave. Appreciate that. And I'm sure that that's the same, you know, a lot of people are probably wondering the same thing. So thank you for asking it. Um, Dana, why don't you take this next one? Um sure. From Mike.
5: I'll be happy to, Mike. Thank you for writing in to us. Well, we're talking about something, again, we were talking about earlier, a little bit of flight attendant information here. Uh, a few quick questions. What are the grooming standards for the flight attendants, specifically the males at Acme Airlines? I was, on, I was on an Acme flight last night, and one of the flight attendants had the side of his head shaved, but the top was long and pulled up into a man bun. <clears throat> he also was wearing two earrings. Why are the grooming standards different between the pilots and other flight crew members? I'm assuming ACME wouldn't let their pilots do this. I could see ACME allowing their male flight attendants to have beards. But other than that, I would think that the same grooming standards would apply to everyone. In my opinion, he just did not project the professional image that I have become accustomed to at ACME Airlines. Jeff and Dana, what are your thoughts? Maybe I'm just becoming an old fat. (laughs) Thanks for all the hard work each and every one of you put into the show. Sincerely, Mike.
4: Mike Um, Cochran, the guy that gave us those wonderful Yeti um, tumblers or whatever you call those things. I don't
5: know if you want me to say his last name. Mike Cochran.
4: Yeah. Okay.
5: There you go. Mike Cochran. Thank you. Everybody knows Mike Cochran. (laughs) Mike Cochran. Um, Jeff, why don't you go ahead with that one? Oh, yeah.
4: Okay. Um, So I'm wondering, Dana. Do you think that maybe that was like an ACME regional flight? I mean, have you seen anybody with the whole side of his head shaved?
5: You know, I have not. I've seen some questionable standards uh, at ACME um, that have now become um, more commonplace these days. But I have not seen that type of an individual. I'm not sure that uh, male earrings are are But to be quite honest with you, Mike, I I don't have access to that manual to see what their policies and procedures are as far as grooming standards. I do know that, you know, if a a flight attendant is going to ride on the jump seat, they have to have certain grooming standards. Um, However, I've never actually gone into their manual saying, all right, you don't look appropriate because I don't feel as though – Unless somebody's really in a uh, you know way out of bounds, I don't really feel it's my position to really uh, critique that employee group per se. Um, I do know that they're allowing more. Yeah, that's true. That's for sure. I have
4: noticed that the young, the new generation of flight attendants uh, are obviously they must have changed the rules because uh, they're, they're they're looking different than. You know what we're used to seeing. Oh
0: yeah, there was some fairly outrageous, what I would consider outrageous haircuts in my outfit and my outfit is fairly relaxed and that was before I left. You know, Mm. so completely shaved at the side, big really stack of hair on top, uh, Mm -hmm. shaved completely up one side and a flop of hair, but that's a modern um, or a youthful style of haircut. So, who's to say?
4: I think also they've relaxed their standards on tattoos because i think i recall now seeing some people you know sporting tattoos or maybe they they allowed them but they wanted you to have like your sleeves covering them or whatever uh, but i i think that they have relaxed that standard as well um but Hmm. the 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 question as regarding are the standards the same for the flight attendants and the pilots i'd say no Uh, the pilots we are um uh, we have to Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Comply with uh, a higher or a different, uh, more strict standard of grooming than everybody else. Like beards, for instance, we can't have beards, but I noticed that flight attendants and ramp personnel and that kind of thing, they're allowed to have beards.
0: Um, Mind you, who who sort of monitors the uh, flight deck dress standards? Because I know the cabin crew get inspected by their senior member before each flight uh, who does a uniform inspection i mean it would be the captain and do any of the captains ever pull up a first officer for having an unironed shirt or dirty shoes or something
4: it it is our responsibility dana you can yes. answer that it's our responsibility yeah ab-
5: absolutely it's our responsibility but <laughs> on the same on the same token you know I, I, as a, a very well-seasoned first officer, I must admit I flew with several captains that did not uh, meet the standards. And so, you know, if, that's a real hard position to be in. If somebody's blatantly, you know, shows up to work and they haven't shaved in two days, you know, I might say go into the bathroom, you know, in first class, pull out your shaving kit and shave. Uh, but, you know, as far as polished shoes or wearing their hat, you know, I, <clears throat> I have – the only time I've ever had the first officer that had a hat issue was that he wore it all the time. <laughs> I and mean, I kid you not even down. we I, I, I remember it very vividly. the uh, It's the um, uh, embassy. Is it NBC suites that has that free breakfast in the morning? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So wow. I came down for breakfast and there he was sitting with the hat on, nothing Just the else hat? on, but the hat having breakfast. Maybe he had like a hat. three hour delay. Did he have something <laughs> else on
4: underneath the hat, did he?
5: Yeah. Nope. He, no, we're but talking
4: he, about did he have any other clothing on?
5: Oh, yes, he had other clothing on. He
4: did he have his, his cool uniform, uniform on or just regular civilian clothes? No, his <laughs> that would move funny. No, he had his uniform. <laughs> we're trying on. to get the picture here. Yeah.
9: I was first, I was imagining, well, first, I was imagining like regular. I bet you were. <laughs> street clothes hat and then I was imagining naked or like underwear hat
5: <laughs> I guess I didn't say that very well did I <laughs> <laughs> just where our hat. minds go
9: immediately Dana <laughs> uh,
5: yeah I, I, granted I, I I should know I should mind my PCQs a whole lot better well <laughs> we I mean we seriously had a three hour delay and was sitting on the airplane with his hat on had his hat on was now head. when he's actually flying the airplane does he have his
4: hat on too with the like the the headset over? Over the top of it, it didn't go that far,
5: but I'll tell you, it was well, a shame
4: in- that that's so 50s, <laughs> so
5: it's quite the opposite. And I did probably say something to him, you know, you can take your hat off.
4: <laughs> I would rather have that guy than the guy that never wears his hat. <laughs> yeah, I'd a- actually have some fun with that guy that wearing the hat all the time. That's that's cool.
5: yeah, you, you, you can. You, <laughs> You know, it's it all, it, as you know, Jeff, it's it's all in your attitude and the way you treat your, your, yeah. your peers and how you can approach something like that. You can say, you know, if, if you're a jerk, which, you know, neither one of us are. Um, can't speak for Nick. No, I'm, I'm, <laughs> Nick. But no, I'm a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> away, hey, listen, you know, I, I realized, one, you, you know, just try to do it, you know, just play it off in a nice way. But I haven't had really had to cross that bridge yet fortunately.
0: The only um, thing I would say is that generally speaking our cabin crew were held to a higher standard than the flight deck Um, and it used to annoy me that some of the other pilots I flew with would go back into the cabin to use the toilet or go to rest or whatever um, dressed as they would do sitting at the the controls and I wouldn't care what they were doing if they were some guys took the shirts off and just sat there in a t shirt, and other guys, oh. uh, you know, buttons on, yeah, whatever. Uh, but they would then stroll into the cabin looking like that. And I'm going, look, the passengers see you as a pilot, and the cabin crew look at you, and you're supposed to be just one above them in the hierarchy. Uh, if you're going to go back and be in front of our customers, you've got to dress appropriately because the cabin crew will look at you sideways and start disrespecting you, and the passengers certainly will. So, uh, and, and a lot of them just did not get that, didn't understand that concept, I and mean, it used to frustrate me.
4: Yeah. I don't blame you.
5: Fortunately, I- not think
9: any profession that you're in, if you're in a- <sighs> core, Oh, sorry.
5: <laughs> it's it's <okay>. a safety <laughs> ambience. Speaking <laughs> of the <laughs> <big interesting laughs> profession you're in, <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> what did they, like, did they do something to her machine or something, or- What's going yeah, that
0: biting the cables, that's what it is. She's
4: laughing very hard about something.
9: <laughs> Speaking of professionalism, you know, when,
4: <laughs> your dogs come running in, <laughs> barking <laughs>
9: all of a sudden and jump on your... Uh, right on cue. <laughs> they hit the uh, cable for the headphones and it tried to pull it out of my ear and then it pulled it down on the floor and I was attached to it still. <laughs> they're still barking. So I'm sorry about that. I've completely <laughs> forgotten what I was going to say. Uh, something about being professional, professional
4: and, in your job, uh, in any and, profession.
9: Yeah. yeah it, uh, anytime you're, you're uh, presenting yourself to the public in that capacity, you should probably be um, judging yourself to a bit of a higher standard there too, because it does send a message and a signal. So yeah, it, it it does not inspire much confidence when you're poorly groomed or um, I don't know, just not conducting yourself or carrying yourself in a professional way.
5: You know, and, and I would say, and add to that, Jeff, that the uh, the company does a pretty darn good job of hiring people that are going to really represent the, the, the company uh, really well. So you, um, you know, usually it's not an issue. And I've, you know, it's been very few people I've ever seen that don't um, adhere to standard as far as pilots go. Uh, and you know, it, some of the really senior people that just have been around a long time, they tend to be the worst offenders, to be honest with you.
4: Yeah, I and I agree, Dana. I I look at um, so, see some pilots from other outfits walking around airport terminals, and I'm thinking. Overall, I think that the uh, pilots at at our uh, company uh, do represent uh, the pilot force pretty well. Look yes. pretty pretty it, as far as grooming standards are concerned. They can't fly worth a darn, but they look good. Well, <laughs> that's the important thing.
0: That's all that counts.
4: That's right.
9: They're inspiring confidence. <laughs> yes, with their that's
4: appearance. right. <laughs> all right. Um, quick uh, audio feedback from aviator Tony.
8: Hello, APG crew, Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, Captain Dana, and Dr. Steph. Well, it's official. I've been diagnosed with the uber-contagious APG syndrome. (gasps) Not unlike how quickly the coronavirus has spread through Wuhan, the APG syndrome has shut down productivity, infected unwitting aviators in my circle, and I thank you for that. (laughs) I truly enjoy listening to all of you banter back and forth about aviation headlines, listener feedback, and those wonderfully narrated plain tales. Cheers to you, Captain Nick, as I am sipping on some bourbon in your honor. I started listening to APG somewhere around episode 393, I believe, where I found myself driving to the LAX airport to start a trip sequence. I was embedded in SoCal traffic as I stumbled across your show when I suddenly found myself wiping away tears from my eyes as Captain Jeff read the farewell to Thomas Cook letter sent in by a loyal listener. All of you have something very special together, and I applaud you. Full disclosure, I too have been producing a podcast called Squawk Ident. It is a place where we discuss the journey that I and my guests have navigated in our airline careers. If any of you are so inclined to give it a listen, I'd appreciate your feedback. By the way, I love your episode cover R. Jeff. Here's hoping to our paths crossing sometime soon. Cheers! Keep the dirty side down, and wishing all of you the best from Aviator Tony and the Squawk Ident Crew.
5: Ah, a little
4: last
8: swig a of
5: bourbon. Big aviator Tony.
8: Yeah, I listen to it. I hate it. Get, get off the air. Stop it. <laughs> you
5: know what? Go away. I have too a many to Tony. I'm the bourbon guy. <laughs> Next, the the. the, yeah. the Nick is the Scotch. Well, I also like Scotch Scotch too. and now gin. <laughs> gin,
9: <laughs> gin, yes. We
0: I change. am only joking, Tony. I am going to listen to
4: it, your very next installment. So make sure it's a damn good
3: one.
9: I have not listened yet, but I do plan to. So.
4: I have listened to a little bit of it, and from what I've heard, everything is great. You're doing a great job, Tony. Um, we'll we'll put the uh, link to his podcast, Squawk Ident, in the Have you uh, show notes? Him
0: to take his head out of the bucket
4: yet? Um, No, I haven't. You've you've done that per- for me just just perfectly. Are you joking? <laughs> I haven't even heard it yet. Wow. Okay. Um. All right. I don't know. Really, I, I have, have no part idea part what he's it. talking about.
9: I have no <laughs> idea what he's talking about either. So we HR, apologize. You need to,
5: you need to interject here, each year.
0: Well, yeah, HR doesn't understand what talking with you. I, I have no idea
9: what's going like. on, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, I, I whatever it great. is, we apologize, Tony. And uh, <laughs> I
5: think there's some extra gin being consumed over in England at this
0: moment. might be, might be, could be. But uh, no, I really appreciate your kind comments, Tony. Thanks very much,
4: and uh, good luck with your podcast. And I'm certainly going to take a listen, you know. And 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 he said some really, really nice things about they you, did, specifically, really like, nice. and then you yeah. kind of treat him like that.
0: That's, uh, that's that's the bourbon in me Ah, uh, okay right. I bourbon. feel like we're going to get another piece of feedback uh, soon really, Well,
9: I uh, found the cure to APG syndrome <laughs> I'm over <laughs> it I <it. laughs> <laughs> personally oh, insult you
0: it's Actually, nice. it, <laughs> it was the old curmudgeon Making
5: an occasional
4: uh, <laughs> <laughs> comment Did somebody say APG syndrome? Possibly
5: Yes APG syndrome,
4: APG syndrome. apg syndrome all right haven't played that one in a while <laughs> all right um let's see i think that uh, the next one i think steph should should uh cover this I, one i think i should yeah so
9: this comes from uh john in perth western australia he says good day captain jeff no one else, just Jeff. Firstly, <laughs> I love your podcast. It makes my hour commute to and from work. Wait a minute. Way more... Wait a minute.
4: Wait a minute. Uh, maybe I should do it because he didn't address oh, yeah, anybody oh, else. <laughs> okay. Just kidding.
9: We, we know what you meant, John. Yeah. Uh, good day, Captain Jeff from Perth, Western Australia. Firstly, I love your podcast. It makes my hour commute to and from work way more enjoyable. I look forward to the start of every show and finding out where you are in America. Now to the point of my email. Something that rocked me to my core when I was 16 and stole any hope I had of being an airline pilot, and that would be colorblindness. I went into high school, trying as hard as I could to get top grades to keep my dream alive of being a pilot. I am by no means a top student, and school was quite frankly a struggle, but alas, I put in 100% and was getting to where I needed to be. Then comes the bombshell. I attended an information session so that I could get my piloting career up and away pardon the pun, and met all the criteria needed of me to commence aviation at a high school level. Uh, Just a formality to do the medical before signing on the dotted line. My dream was about to become a reality, but then wham, the oh-so-gentle optometrist tells me so kindly, don't even bother becoming a pilot, you're colorblind, and won't be able to. Oh, or a train driver, or an electrician. Oh, and one more kick, not even a firefighter. I walked out of that room the most dejected and beaten person. My dreams and, quite frankly, my passion had disappeared before my very eyes, and there wasn't a thing I could do about it. Later on in life, I have tried to fight the Australian Army in regards to colorblindness, not being the stigma that it used to be, and that the systems they use are outdated and antiquated. I took it as high as the officer in charge of defense, at that time Angus Huston. This was all in vain as I was basically told to go away as they had their needs without having to worry about people like me. Yet another kick in the guts. Mm. Now getting on, I hear you keep mentioning pilot shortages, and over uh, and over in Australia and New Zealand, most airlines are starting up trainee programs. And interestingly, New Zealand have relaxed their laws on for uh, on colorblind people <laughs> flying. Just,
4: just <laughs> on four blind.
9: <laughs> Sorry, there was a typo there. and I just read right.
0: Uh, I I love that. I, blind people I, <laughs> flying. is. Great idea! <laughs> Don't fly on, uh, on, on Air New Zealand. <laughs> so oddly enough, when
9: I read through this, when I read through this earlier, because <laughs> I did prepare, uh, I just glazed right over that.
4: I, I didn't, didn't notice even, it either. It didn't
9: even register that there was a typo there. So my apologies. Uh, no, well, I didn't. Like
5: you going through your doctor's notes?
9: <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I find those. I didn't notice it until it you right.
4: just read it and went, "What?"
9: Have <laughs> <laughs> relaxed their laws on colorblind people flying. Uh, that would be New Zealand. I have informed my wife I want to move to New Zealand, but that was met with a grunt. (laughs) (laughs) Furthermore, and I know you are not an advocate of it, but in a non-motion 737-800 simulator that QantasLink used to assess the suitability of pilots to fly the 737, I was able to do, as my instructor put it, quote, better than a lot of the qualified pilots did, Mm. uh, quote, on the simulator. I put this down to, um, and while not the same, uh, gives you the confidence to fly uh, the 737 is the iFly 737 on flight simulator cool so yeah i guess what i'm asking is could you ever see a future where colorblind people can get behind the controls of a commercial aircraft after all and i quote from the british army 79 percent of colorblind people can do a normal vision person uh, can do without any issue anyway i may have bored you to death by now so i will anyway, sign off.
3: if
0: i think you misread that so I read it correctly this time. I admitted, That's the so second time that people. typo
9: occurred. I just I did catch the first time, and I did normal not read it the first time can either. Do
0: what normal people <laughs> Thank can <you>. do <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay, what were you,
9: were you blonde, Nick?
0: No, I am yeah. getting pretty blonde now. Huh? <laughs> I was <born sighs> Sorry, blonde. Sorry, John,
9: let me finish your email here. <laughs> anyway, I may have bored you to death by now, so I will sign off. Keep up the good work, and thank you for allowing me a glimpse into what would have been my dream. Warm regards, John Mann, from Perth, Western Australia. A so great,
0: nice, love it.
9: <laughs> yes, very nice. And I, gosh, that's not um sounds like it was never put very delicately to him. huh No, I know it sounds of, pretty rude. No, sorry, no. <laughs> yeah, quite rude. And
0: we're being so sympathetic. Yes, well, we are.
9: Yeah. No. Well, I'm going to uh, launch into some things that might be helpful for. John here. We, um, Liz was kind enough to, because we have talked about this before. I think specifically I've talked about um, some of the US requirements for this. So if you go back to APG 310 and 143, way back on the way back machine, um, the topic was covered. So since John is in Australia, I actually went and looked up uh, what the Australia... Um, Civil Aviation Authority has to say about it, and that's what I'm going to go through here in the interest of time. If you need the U.S. version, please check out episode 310 and 143 because I believe it was covered there. Um, So what they say, so applicants for class one or two medical, um, there's basically a a sequence that they'll follow for color vision testing. Um, They want you to do the Ishihara pseudo-isochromatic plates. Those are the ones that most people are comfortable or uh, familiar with. The circular plates with all the little colorful dots, and there's usually a number or something similar embedded in there that you're supposed to identify. If you fail that, um, then they go on to test you with the Farnsworth lantern test. And I had to look that one up, but I think we've talked about it before as well. But it's basically yeah. um, for identifying uh, signal lights at night is, how it was, is the reason why it was developed. But it's basically a combination of different red-green lights that they'll test, and you're supposed to identify whether they're the same or different. Um, and also, uh, there's like white, yellow. It doesn't look at blue-green deficiency, I think, or blue color deficiency, but just those more common red-green deficiencies. <clears throat> so there's that one. And then, um, if you do not pass that one, sorry, the dogs are back. Um, you can be right you. that professionalism, right? <laughs> um, you can be referred for a test uh, determined by the Civil Aviation Safety Authority. Uh, that simulates an operational situation. Um, so a pass on any one of those tests will satisfy the requirements for the issuance of a unrestricted class one or class two medical certificate. <laughs> I'm going to have to, let me kick them out. Then no, I'll you're continue. fine. No,
4: I, we can hardly hear anything.
9: <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure it's quite loud. Anyway, um, new applicants for a class three medical certification or certification are required to pass the Ishihara uh, color vision test and no additional or alter- alternative color testing is available for that group. So I'm not sure how their class one, two and three um, medicals are somewhat, they seem a little bit different than ours because um, that seems a little bit more restrictive. Perhaps they just don't offer the more advanced testing if you're just looking for that class three medical. So, but that's what they have um, on the Australian civil aviation safety authority Um Site, so hopefully that is helpful. Um, I think in this case or in these cases, we've always kind of recommended it's probably best to meet with a aviation medical examiner because they can talk you through what that process would be and what the um, restrictions that would be in place might be. That might be more relevant to you. So um, it sounds like there is at least a, a method for trying to go through and sort out. Okay, is this something that's really truly problematic, or can you pass on an operational kind of like a a we do those um, demonstrated ability tests. So if you can, if you can do it in the real world and do it safely, it might be something that you can can get through. So.
4: That's what I recall when we have talked about this before, Steph, on yeah. uh, previous shows. And I was kind of surprised. I didn't realize. I mean, I thought that that Ishihara or whatever, what is it called?
9: Ishihara, uh, Ishihara. isochromatic plates.
4: Exactly. I was going <laughs> to say that. Uh, pit, pit but,
9: plates. I think you know,
4: those things <laughs> that we that, that I always think of when I think of color blindness tests and I thought that's it you know if you don't pass that then oh too bad but I think we had one of our um, listeners say oh well it turns out that and then he talked about that Farnsworth lantern mm-hmm. test and
9: captain al had some information about it as well i think yeah, he had so. some information yeah he might have been talking about that lantern test yeah and uh-huh. I never heard of that
4: and mm-hmm. didn't realize there was any where to go if you didn't passed that first test. And, uh, yeah, so I think that, uh, and I I think we also talked about the fact that don't take no for the final answer. And that's kind of the lesson that uh, I've learned from some, a lot of these medical issues that, you know,
9: don't don't take no as a final answer from someone who is not well-versed in the aviation guidelines. You know, you can always, you always want to consult with someone who's, um, specifically, um, has that background in training so
0: uh, I and even to then to get opinion. a second opinion yes always get a second opinion and then yeah. even
9: a third too so
0: yeah yes and
9: be persistent you know
0: yeah and don't forget captain kirk beat the Kobayashi maru test so uh, i'm sure you can beat that test so no, i'm honestly no it's <laughs> no, really a different one that's a different test i think oh okay all right you mm-hmm. had to cheat yeah. um Quite honestly, I'm, uh, I'm thinking about my life in aviation and um, how important it is. And uh, most of our warnings, um, although they're color-coded, they're also um, well positioned, clear of each other, and usually have um, some written um, element to them as well, rather than just color, certainly on, on more recently designed aircraft. Uh, so... I'm thinking that in future, uh, aircraft will probably or colour will probably be less of a uh, a problem, because um, you know it, it it makes it life a little simpler sometimes if you can um, distinguish between the urgency and warnings because one is red and one is amber, for example. But um, it, I think if you can adequately read and overcome those uh, issues. That, and you do that on a performance-based test rather than um, so it's down to your ability rather than your condition. Uh, then I think there's a, a chance that you might be lucky or you might get through. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just keep pressing. Keep, and even and if do- you're given a no now, doesn't mean to say that no will still be uh, relevant in a few years time.
9: Sure. And I think uh, at least here in the states, but from what I know from uh, the Ame guidelines here. Um, a lot of it does come down to light signals um, that they want you to be able to identify, so that's part of the operational um, color vision perception test, I think they call it here. Um so you have to be able to timely and accurately identify those in a in a field test. Um, if for some reason you're not able to, you can get a third class medical, I believe, with a restriction that says not valid for light gun use or night flying. I think it'll put both of those on there for you if I remember. Yeah, not not day. What does it say? Not valid for flight during daylight hour, hour. Well, let me try that again. Not valid for flight during daylight hours by color signal control is what it says. So nothing to do with night.
4: I mean, it's a very rare situation where you're going to be looking yeah. at that control tower and looking for a green light for landing clearance or a red light to say nope, you're not allowed to land. Um, but an airliner.
5: But yeah, yeah. But the only place I see where it might be an issue is identifying taxiway lights, runway lights. Mm-hmm. Um, happy mm-hmm. Valley. So that's the, the restriction pretty, at night
9: as well. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: the patterns are usually pretty distinctive. If you're well briefed and well prepared, uh, mm-hmm. and because we're always two men operation, no one does anything on their own. They may, you may have a restriction that you can't fly w- with another color blind person, right? Uh, but or color blonde or
4: four,
9: four blind pilots
0: person, yes. No blonde people in my flight deck. Thank
4: you very much. <laughs> All right. Well, John, I hope we uh, didn't confuse you too much with that answer. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's hope. And
9: and actually, if you'll allow me real quick, we had one of oh, yeah. our listeners in the Facebook chat room. Mitchell says he did the letter of ability. So met with FISDO and hopefully did come up with flights. Or no, I'm sorry. No, I can't even get it right. I was trying to unmute before to... Say the acronym for FISDO, and now I can't even remember it. Oh yeah, um, um, inspe-
0: It's the kind of uh, dough you make uh, fizzy bread out of. <laughs>
9: exactly, but anyway, met light with the standards FISDO district office. Thank you, and answered the color questions on a sectional light gun signals from the run-up area, a short flight identifying colors on the ground, and turns out he only had a blue deficiency, so was able to get that letter of demonstrated ability. So, it's possible.
4: There you yeah. go. Awesome. Well, thanks for the input from the uh, chat room. And uh, just another reminder, if uh, you get a chance, follow us on um, social media and uh, join us when we're recording live, because I think you'll have a great time with all the fantastic people that we have in our live chat rooms, both on Facebook Live and YouTube. and. With that, uh, a and
0: couple. And finally, to John, I just wanted to say, um, please keep us advised how you get on, because uh, I yep. no, I was uh, making a few jokes at your expense, but uh, I'm really interested to find out how your career progresses. So good luck with that. Absolutely.
9: And our listeners will be as well, because there are certainly other folks out yes. there with the same yes, questions. You're not
4: the only one. Yep. That is so true. All right. Well, we almost did it. only have a couple uh, that we didn't get to on today's show, but we'll move those on over.
3: To... Oh, no,
0: I've, I've studied mine. Well,
4: do you want to, let's see.
0: Yeah, I've studied it and everything. Well, you'll uh,
9: have the answer all ready to go it'll for it.
4: Yeah, I it'll, might not be there. It'll I be even better. Be I might have left the show by then. <laughs> Wait a minute. Is is Nick going to be on any future shows?
9: Um, we'll HR know. was planning on... Convening a meeting after today's show. I I wasn't sure if you had
4: notified him. Are we we really that short? (laughs) I can get this done real quick. Oh, come on. All right. Uh, Can I really? Nick, item 10.
0: Oh, you're very kind. So this is from uh, G-Man Glaucus. Uh, And uh, worst aeroplanes ever made? Uh, See below a link listing some of the worst aeroplanes ever built. There are some serious contenders here, but I saw a couple of interesting models. The DC-10, the AR-72, the Dash 8, the little Brasilia once flown by Dana, and even the MD-80. Were, brackets, are they that bad? I flew most of them at many times and lived to tell the tale. Virgin Australia still operates the ATR-72 and Qantas has a few Dash 8s. What is the worst airplane you've ever flown as a passenger or a pilot? By the way, congratulations on your recent vehicle purchase, Nick. Great choice from a fellow four-ring owner. Oh, is he a captain as well? I didn't realize. No,
4: that's four stripes.
0: Uh, Okay. Uh, All right. On another note, what do you have on your epaulet set? You know, stripes, your rings. Um, otherwise, they we can go around. I don't um, know any rings know on my apple. I applause. know what he's talking, he's talking about. about audio. Your car. Your oh, car. all right. Okay. Thank you very much. No, appreciate it. Yeah. On another note, there was a discussion about runway surface on APG 403. The other captain, Jeff, once sent a very comprehensive feedback on the differences between asphalt, tarmac, and others might be worth revisiting. Clear skies, tailwinds, and God bless. Cheers, Glaucus. Okay, Glaucus. Um, having four rings yes was a major influence on my car choice uh, it's possibly the worst list of aircraft I've ever had the misfortune to review I couldn't find the author's name I'm not surprised and I guess that money poop or whoever they are just don't care I could spend ages ripping it all apart I'm going to try and be brief uh, he quotes many experimental aircraft that didn't make it into production uh, that's uh, kind of the point some were Purely to gain data, like the nuclear powered aircraft, and were never intended to be mass produced, like the Grumman X 29. Uh, That was supposed to be unstable and need a flight computer. That's how it achieved its remarkable manoeuvrability. Others were beaten by competitors, but that doesn't put them on the list of the world's worst. Um, This bloke picks on the Douglas DC-10, stating it had an issue with its cargo doors that all opened outwards, not inwards, like regular planes. Has this bloke ever seen cargo (laughs) doors in operation? They all (laughs) opened outwards.
5: Not no, all. that's not true. Not on ours. Oh, no, really? Go on. No, they're inward. Yeah. Some, oh, some open
9: out, some open in. Depends. Oh, uh, Airbus likes the Audi. In? I
5: yeah. mean, so, uh, I would... go on then. Who's no, Steph, in? I'm stopping you right there because <laughs> I was thinking the same thing.
9: <laughs> <laughs> Great minds, Dana.
5: Great
0: minds. Mm-hmm. I mean, come on. Who's open in? No, no, I
9: just said Airbus prefers the Audi version. Oh,
0: we do. We, um, we're in the way is, that. is exactly right. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, uh, the Mad Dog, uh,
4: they all open in.
0: Do they really? Well, how yeah. do you put cargo behind a door that opens in? Uh, well, the, there's don't. no target right behind the door. <laughs> oh well, that's a completely stupid idea. Um, he <laughs> criticises the original Wright flyer for only managing a flight of 59 seconds and covering 852 feet, and for managing only four flights. Does he know that it was the very first heavier-than-air flying machine? No, obviously we know that. Uh, what was he expecting? A three-hour flight across the Atlantic at Mach two? Uh, and of the embryo brasilia he calls it one of the worst passenger planes in history any comments guys
5: yeah i have a lot of comment on that you never flew the airplane and it's a very very nice airplane very complex um, but i enjoyed flying that aircraft quite a bit the Brasilia. The Brazilian. Yeah, well,
0: absolutely. Uh, 105 Brazilians are still in airline service in, uh, in, you know, North and South America, Africa, Europe, and Pacific, the Asia-Pacific aeropl- uh, area. Um, he goes on about what, you know, the SAL 340, very successful airplane. Uh, it was on the list for just being noisy, so I give up. By the way, the mag Dog gets there in as well. So um, yeah, what can I say? I, I, I love the, the photograph
5: it. of the ATR on final with the cruise ship in the background because <laughs> that's the ship I was just on. <laughs> oh yeah. right, right, it really was. Yeah. Well that, so I, like I, the, I can't read I the right, name.
0: The mad dog was the unjustified airplane. I don't know.
5: I like well, the white. I, I them on, on the DC ten. I, that that what? was like one of my least favorite airplanes ever.
4: Wow. I thought the DC ten was a great airplane. Ooh. You know, it's an airplane it, it, it is an airplane and it depends on how the he t- this article talks about the uh, MD80 being slow cramped and inefficient uh but it depends on the airline and how they've configured it i think uh honestly that the uh, the mad dogs seating is more comfortable than the 737s that we fly
0: oh, i fly anyone. one it's quiet that, that, that would be my number one choice on the list the 737
4: yeah. Yeah. Well, i think it's uh, you know beauty is in the eye of the beholder i guess uh, yeah
0: uh, so this guy doesn't know a thing, so no. thanks so much for sending that, and it gave me a chance to rant.
5: Yeah, that was a good I, rant. I just zoomed in on the ship, and I see somebody in their birthday suit on their balcony. Really? No. Oh, was it you again? <laughs> it was me, yes.
4: <laughs> but were you wearing your hat? <laughs>
5: yes, I had the hat on. Good. That's the important thing. <laughs> I'm only kidding. This photograph's like 20 years old, I think.
4: Oh. All right. Well, uh, thank you, Glaucus, for uh, sending that in. I'm being sarcastic. Um, How
9: oh, we liked it. Like I said, I like this one-person helicopter thing, the Devil's Hoverbike. Did you see that one? No. Oh, yeah. I think I would have a fun time riding that around the lake <laughs> out here. Yeah, they show would. it over water. Be uh, I'd
4: be careful getting on to anything that says the Devil's anything. Well, it's
9: got the, the the design flaw, and I think they're right on this: is that the um, rotor blades are underneath the platform that you stand on.
4: Oh, that's it's a very good. small platform.
9: <laughs> yes, that's oh.
4: not good. One false step, and that's it. Exactly yeah, right. Fish food. Yeah. yeah. Mm.
0: And then we're going to use it for uh, American soldiers to fly around the battlefield. I could just some bloke landing in it and then thinking, well, I've now got to wait like two minutes being fired at while this propeller slows down <laughs> so and get off.
4: <laughs> Not going to happen. Not a brilliant design. No. Nah. Yeah. All right. Well, that was fun. Um, thank you for insisting that we do that, Nick. And so now next time, though, we're going to talk about a positive view on uh, airplanes that we would fly from Peter in New York. Otherwise, we got to everybody else. So that's great. Um, all right. Anything else before we move on to the closing of the show?
0: I'm ready. Mm-hmm. All, right. all right. So
4: let me see if I can turn on the the uh, microphone that we have in the. Uh, oh, There it is.
0: Oh, hang on a minute. Liz is saying we didn't actually answer G-Man's question.
4: Oh, no. Uh,
9: you failed in your homework assignment, Nick.
0: Well, I did. Well, I thought I meant What was his question? Let what me was up. the worst
9: airplane you ever, oh, you've, you've ever, ever flown as a passenger or a pilot? You get to. All I think right. we kind of did.
4: DC 10 on, Jeff. Well, yeah. Worst? I don't know. They're also worst. good. Um, oh. I don't know. Really? I do my
9: homework on this the
0: Hercules. <sighs> It's probably the most uncomfortable journey and the longest and most awful journey I've ever oh, I know. Been. Oh, well, I, I mean, being on a the, 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 the
4: 141 was um, at least as uncomfortable if you're riding in the back. Um, yeah.
9: yeah. I've got one. Skyvan. I mean, they're <laughs> fun to jump out of, but they're <laughs> uncomfortable, noisy, hot.
0: Yeah, yeah. That noisy. Be,
9: Did I mention that they're noisy? I have
0: never ever heard about it, but yeah, I guess
4: it sounds good. <laughs> How was the sound level on that? Shorts three sixty uh, noisy. <laughs> Shorts three sixty. Have you been in one?
5: Dana? Oh yeah, when I was with Bizx.
4: Oh, did you fly one?
5: I did not. Just
4: flown. Flying- yeah, I didn't know Bizx flew those.
5: Ah, interesting. We had, uh, I think about eighteen of them. Ah, right. not not three. comfortable, huh? Not comfortable. Not pressurized. Ah. Very hot. Um. Very noisy. Um. it's just. I think it's one of the ugliest airplanes. It's a flying box. Yeah. It's a shoe box. And so that was truly one of my least favorite airplanes. Yeah. The flying box car. Yes. So it's 360.
4: Yeah. The 330 was even worse. It had that twin tail. But the yes. 360 had a modern single vertical, st- uh, yeah, vertical stabilizer. All right. Well, anything else? Is it okay, Liz, if we proceed?
0: Can we go home now? Okay.
4: Yeah. Okay. She's yeah, thumbs up. Yeah, she's giving me a <laughs> thumbs up. Okay, great. All right, so let's uh, revisit the uh, the bathroom over here. See if uh... you finished yet. Um,
9: oh, he's moved out to the shower. You were too slow. <laughs>
4: <laughs> hello, hello. Come on, it's time again. Why are you in the Why are you in the shower? Why do you do this every week? We've
0: run
10: out of toilet paper again.
4: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Wait. All right. Come on over here. Tell us about Slack. APG listeners, please
7: join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K. Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at AirlinePilotGuy.com or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel and I'll send you an invitation that's Hillel spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1 and see you in Slack
4: well thank you for, for telling us about Slack you can go ahead and
0: was she have... shitty on the toilet while he did that
4: well I don't, I don't know um, wait hang on I hear something <laughs> oh no really
5: Ah, oh, yeah. Delta P. Thanks for that. i about having a little extra slack. <laughs>
4: Talking about, yeah, there's a reason why Hillel does slack. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> um, so uh, we also have, uh, we're also on other social media. We like to call it the social meds and Doctor Steph, can you do? I know your your screen has frozen, but uh, can you uh, tell I'm, us? About, I'm back. Oh, yeah, you are. Yeah. Okay, okay, great. Yes. Tell us about the social. Hopefully,
9: meetings. it will it will last. But <laughs> so if I drop out. You'll know why. Okay. Uh, Yes. Social media. You can find us on Twitter. Uh, We are at APG crew. That is our handle. You can find our individual Twitter information pinned to the top of that page. You can also head over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy and find us there. Find more of the community there. uh, Share your aviation thoughts with us. We want to hear from you.
4: Absolutely. And in fact, speaking of the airline pilot guy website, um, let's uh, see if I can share the screen I'm doing this so well all right here we go from tab and boom and boom there hopefully that'll, that is showing up uh, that is our uh, beautiful website airlinepilotguy.com where you can learn more about the crew the community uh, see the videos on YouTube uh, list of our podcasts we have the plane Tales special page and you, you can subscribe to that by the way uh, also as a separate podcast uh, information about the coffee fund the APG store uh, ways to contact us and the all important APG community calendar and the little magnifying glass doohickey thing that uh, allows you to do a search on our site if you're looking for something in particular so check it out airlinepilotguy.com and until next time Wishing you all clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Oh, before we do that, I forgot to do this last time. Thanks to our producer, Liz, Hooray! in Toronto. Thank you very Thank much you, for Liz. making it so much easier for me. Hi, and crazy, crazy. <laughs> uh, All that. So, and until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless.
5: Cheers, y'all. Bye, buddy. Smooth landings, everybody. See you next time.
8: Till I started APG. I opened doors for little old ladies. I helped them to their seats.
3: Airline pilot guy. I'm fly a flyer. Oh. Airline pilot
8: guy.
3: He can't
8: land it get before. Oh. I got no friends cause I'm always flying. I just don't have the time. But I can land this old plane. I can land it just fine. Airline,
3: not guy. I fly a.